BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, Tom Brady says he's done, and I and I'm I'm gathering most everybody believes him, but I couldn't help I couldn't help when he posted that video of himself announcing his retirement again, this time for good. I couldn't help but think, well, we'll see you next year, Tom. Tom Brady's done. Uh, I'm going to play his retirement announcement. Uh, I want your reaction to his career, his legacy. What in your mind puts Tom Brady over the top? Is it just the Super Bowl championships? Is it something else? Because for me, it's something else. Like the winning, yeah. I mean, that's the conversation. You win titles. We talk about are you the GOAT, are you not, who has more championships, who has more uh, MVPs and championship rounds of their sport. Michael Jordan still on top there, but Tom Brady right behind him. But what are the factors that go into that? And uh, in the last couple of years, has Brady helped his legacy? Sure, by winning in Tampa, uh, doing it in another city. I, I think he separated himself and answered the question of, is it a Bill Belichick thing or is it a Tom Brady thing? We're watching the Patriots struggle, and we watch Brady not struggle so much in getting to a Super Bowl and winning it. 503-417-7575 is the number. Here's Tom Brady's retirement announcement. He's done for good, he says. Good morning, guys. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring for good. I know the process uh, was a pretty big deal last time, so when I woke up this morning, I figured I'd just press record and let you guys know first. So I uh, won't be long-winded. You only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year. So I uh, really thank you guys so much to every single one of you for supporting me, my family, my friends, my teammates, my competitors. I could go on forever. There's too many. Um, thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. Love you all. Not a thing he would change. Tom Brady, uh, who at age 44 led the NFL with 5,316 passing yards. Uh, a 45-year-old Brady, not quite as good, but still pretty good. 4,600 plus passing yards, 25 touchdowns, uh, broke the NFL record for completions even at age 45. There's no doubt that this guy could play another year. I mean, he could squeeze by, he could play another year or two. Tom Brady, though, has nothing left to prove, and I kind of wonder about the erosion of his personal life and his family and the divorce and what role that may have played for a guy who, uh, you know, really last off season demonstrated that he just couldn't stay away he says he's finally walking away he's retiring for good he leaves the nfl with seven super bowl rings five super bowl mvp awards whole bunch of other honors nearly every passing record in league history but the thing that gets me about tom brady is just the standard for longevity that he that he uh, has has put forth it's going to be really hard i think for people who chase his super bowl records and his passing records to simply get first the longevity piece of it in a sport that 
it isn't easy to stick around and be in the league for as long as he was. But if you really think about Tom Brady coming into the league as, you know, a sixth-round draft pick in the 2000 NFL draft and then not retiring officially until, um, until like, you know, 2023's offseason. Like, I saw some jokes circulating today, like, that, that really speak to his longevity. Like, you know, he was the last Montreal Expos draft pick to retire from professional sports, like literally drafted by the Expos. You know, New York Post putting that headline out. And I just find that interesting. I think it's the longevity piece more than anything that happens first because you don't get to win seven Super Bowls and be the MVP five times if you're not in the league for as long as Tom Brady is. I think it's remarkable uh, that Tom Brady played as long as he was. Uh, the, the the standard that he set on the field uh, speaks to his talent and speaks to maybe the Patriots a little bit. But, you know, this is a guy that, um, you know, is saying goodbye for good. I'm glad he's doing it now versus, you know, when the game tells you to walk away. We've heard, uh, you know, a lot of analysts talk about that. Like, this, like professional sports, college sports can be cruel. Because a lot of times in professional sports, they'll tell you, hey, it's time for you to go. And, and really, when you talk to professional athletes and, and athletes in general, they get told they're not good enough, they're not fast enough, they're not big enough, they don't hit well enough, they don't run well enough, their arm's not strong enough. They're, they get told all the time that they're not good enough. Like that is a repeating refrain that happens and Tom Brady got that refrain often and especially in the early part of his career and his time in college and and frankly being drafted uh you know by the by the New England Patriots uh 199th overall like 198 times the NFL told him in that 2000 draft you're not good enough you're not good enough you're not for us you're not right and so Tom Brady getting to announce his own retirement on his terms twice it's pretty special, I think, but it's the longevity piece when I look at Tom Brady that blows me away. 503-417-7575. I want your reaction to Brady's retirement, what your first thoughts were. Steven, what was your reaction when you heard the news today? Yeah, this one this one seemed a little different. Like you said, it's like he said the exact same thing exactly a year ago that he was retiring on February 1st, but this one seemed a little different um, in the fact that it does seem like he's going to retire. You know, if For me, Brady is the best to ever do it, uh, but it's also the defining line of, like, what is most important? Is it championships? Is it skills? I don't think he's the most skillful quarterback. I think you could say he wasn't even the best, most skillful, like, in his generation. Peyton Manning may have been a better quarterback, or Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers had more skills, but Tom Brady was such a gamer, such a baller. Like, he got those wins. So, for me, he's going to go down as the best to ever do it with all the championships, and I think you're right. You know, He only seriously got hurt that one year where he tore his ACL, to play that long in a sport like football and stay relatively healthy for most of his career, I think it's you know that's the biggest accomplishment I think he's had is that he stayed healthy and he's been awesome ever since you know he he got the starting gig with Bledsoe going down. So I I also think you know I thought he was going to go play somewhere else at the start of the off season because I think he could still play, but uh, I think it's cool that he's going to go out the way he wants to go out and uh, no one's going to tell him he has to go out. It's, it's going to be on his own terms. I, I started looking at the average NFL career for all positions. For all positions in the NFL, the average career is, is not three years like everybody thinks it is. It's only two and a half years. Uh, the average quarterback career is three years. The average 
offensive lineman career is three and a half years. So, um, you know, you look at, uh, you know, the average quarterback plays or suits up for just 30 regular season games. So you think about, you know, Tom Brady being uh, above average at age 45, uh, but you look at the, the, the number of games played, this is a guy who uh, won a combined 285 games. Like, not just played, those are games he won. You know, so you talk about a guy who played in uh, more than 300 games total, 335 total in the regular season, and the average career is 30. Uh, it's pretty remarkable to think about that. Peter Sampson, what was your reaction when you saw Tom Brady? Uh, I mean, it was surprising, but it sort of wasn't because we all kind of had a dress rehearsal for uh, reacting to Brady's retirement last year. Now, that was stunning. Uh, I remember it happened before I was doing one of my weekend shows. I pontificated on it for hours. Now, this time, even though I was caught off guard, I went, yep, well, good for him, good career, and that was just sort of it. So I I think the impact was minimized by that, but still, I mean, credit begrudging credit to the the best that ever did it. I was a Joe Montana guy until he won number seven. Uh, and again, it's it's a testament to uh, you know d- doing things your way, uh, healthy eating, you know, cutting edge workouts, and availability is your best ability. There was something about his eyes in this video though that that was different to me than than last time because I think last time. We all sort of went, oh, he's walking away, he's going to be with family, and then I don't think that many people were surprised when he reversed field and he came back, maybe other than the guy who bought the commemorative football for his last game. But I, there was something, there was a hollowness to his eyes in this video, and he was glassy and he was emotional about it, but it wasn't overwrought, it wasn't like, you know, he was wringing you know, every minute out of it, it was kind of short and sweet. But also, I think, very, very authentic and heartfelt. So I look at it, um, and even though people are joking, like, okay, we'll see you next year, like I did. But I I also thought, you know, this looks like a guy who really does feel like he's got everything out of this that he has. Now, when you look at the league, um, you look at sort of uh, the players in the league who uh, you might consider the next to go. Uh, after Tom Brady, who was 45 years old, you look at, like, Robbie Gold, the 49ers kicker's four. He's going to turn 40. But after that, I think the next big name to go is going to be Aaron Rodgers, who is uh, 38 years, uh, you know, 39 years, nine months old. Uh, I want your take. What do you make of Tom Brady's career, his legacy? What was your reaction? Uh, And, by the way, if Brady does, let's say he reverses field again. Let's say he goes home, he takes the trash out a couple more times, he looks around, he goes, hey, you know, uh, this is uh, this offseason thing isn't good. Uh, I need to get back. I think he I think he takes a public beating if he reverses field again. But I just didn't see that in in his eyes, and I didn't hear it in his voice as he talked about retiring for the second time. This time for good. I think he is done for good. Josh is in Vancouver. I got a line open at four one seven seventy five seventy five in the five zero three area code. Josh, go ahead. Hey, John, thanks for taking my call. Hey, listen, I think, uh, you know, it's funny. I hated Brady for a long time because he always beat everybody I was rooting for um, at different times. But uh, now that he's hanging it up, you know, I I really do look back, and uh, this is one of those moments where you don't realize how much you actually appreciate somebody you think you don't like uh, because they're kind of gone and you know that you're not going to be seeing them again. But uh, I did want to add this thought, and this is purely just me speculating, but 
there was part of me that thought that last year him retiring, that his want to retire was legitimate. But because the reason behind the scene was that he was actually getting ready to go through a divorce and nobody knew it, I wondered if the reason that he delayed going into broadcasting is because if the divorce got messy and money became involved, that $300 million contract would then be part of divorce settlement. And so I wondered if his reasoning for coming back had more to do with just the idea that he was trying to protect maybe his long-term future and financial position, and if he just wrote out one more NFL season, he let the, the divorce play out, whatever was going to happen. Because I just never got the impression this year that he was ever happy. Like You saw him on the sidelines. He was always yelling at his teammates, never could find content in any of the wins that they had. So, you know, I, I'm going to miss the guy. I'm going to miss watching the competitor. Um, you know, what a freaking career, man. There's really nothing bad you can say about him. But uh, with all that being said, I wish we wouldn't have seen this last year. That's just my feeling. Thanks, yeah. Mike. I thought he played better after sort of his personal life was kind of settled publicly. Uh, by the way, Giselle's net worth is herself is over $400 million. So I don't necessarily want to think that him turning down broadcasting or putting it off for a year was about him protecting his assets. Tom Brady has earned, uh, you know, about $525 million in his career as a player through endorsements and salary. Giselle's worth about $400 million herself, uh, you know, and, and at one point, you know, just a couple of years ago, she had a net worth that was higher than, than Tom Brady, but maybe. But I, 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 my take on it is it probably, his decision to come back was probably a pivot point in their relationship. Like, he had talked about telling her, that he wanted to spend more time with the family. And it looked to a lot of us, you know, we not, we'll never really know what went on inside uh, their relationship, but it looked, looked from the outside in, it looked like he chose football over his family, which kind of made me sad this last season for him. And then, you know, I, I heard, you know, there are a lot of people who made fun of the divorce and whatnot. I, I just don't, like, I know on the show we talked about, like, how sad that was for his family and for himself. Like, we don't know what was going on. Uh, elsewise in, in the middle of that relationship. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about National Signing Day. Does it hold the luster of other signing days? Plus, what did Jonathan Smith and Dan Lanning say today? And what are they going to do tonight? I kind of think we're in a golden era of football in the state. I'll talk about it next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We're in a golden era. I wrote it this morning at johnconzano.com. If you subscribe, if you have a free subscription or a paid subscription, you got it in real time. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to search for it. Uh, you can do that at johnconzano.com. But the Ducks and the Beavers are going head-to-head -to -head today. Um, the Beavers are hosting their signing day celebration uh, today, uh, tonight at 6 o'clock at the Embassy Suites Hotel in Tigard. Uh, I, I checked with some hotel employees this morning. They were setting up the Deschutes River Ballroom this morning, and then they were planning to set up the uh, Columbia River Ballroom. That's two ballrooms. Uh, Jonathan Smith and Oregon State will take the stage 
for a reception tonight at 6 o'clock in one of the ballrooms, and then they will have dinner in the other. Uh, Oregon State is flying in Petros Papadakis and his wife for the event. Uh, FS1 broadcaster and friend of this show, Petros will be on stage. He'll be the MC. It's going to be cool. It's going to be kind of a, you know, hey, this is who we signed. This is what we're about. Talk about last season. Drum up some excitement and some enthusiasm. There's going to be some we us. I'm sure Petros is going to tell some jokes and be funny and be great on stage, as he always is. Uh, but a couple miles away in Beaverton uh, at Nike World Headquarters, Dan Lanning will be on the stage. And they're charging $100 for general admission tickets. By the way, the Oregon State thing is sold out. You can't get a ticket. But right now, Oregon's charging 100 bucks general admission ticket. I don't know who gets the money. Uh, I, I wonder if maybe the NIL Collective should get the money so the recruits end up with it. But anyway, uh, that would be just, right? Uh, but in the end, uh, you can go to the Tiger Woods Center. You can toast with beer and wine. You can hear Dan Landing and his staff talk about their signing day hall that they got. But here's the bigger thing. Tiger and Beaverton. Embassy Suites, Nike World Headquarters. There's two 10-win teams tonight that will be kind of doing a signing day celebration. And I can remember over the years that I have been in this state, covering Oregon State and covering Oregon, some years that were not so celebratory. I can remember a couple of years in the Mike Bellotti era at Oregon that, you know, there wasn't a lot of momentum and enthusiasm for what was happening. People were kind of wondering, what's the direction of this program? And then Chip Kelly comes in, Bilotti era, hands the baton off, and uh, it just soared. And all of a sudden, there was all kinds of enthusiasm. And Chip Kelly took the Oregon Ducks to the national title game. And then Mark Helfrich took the Ducks back to the national title game. And so that was always good. But at the same time, I kept looking over at Oregon State at different times. And maybe there's some down years at Oregon State. And so I was thinking about this the other day. Somebody asked me, one of the listeners of the show asked me a question via Twitter, said, you know, is this the golden era of the Civil War? And it got me thinking, like, what is the golden era of the Civil War? And, you know, and that requires, by the way, both programs being good. So it's not really hard to find the windows in which they were both good because it jumps out to you when you look at the year-by-year records for Oregon and the year-by-year records from Oregon State. Like, you can go back to the Lon Steiner or the Tommy Prothrow years at Oregon State, and they went to Rose Bowls, but that was decades ago. And at that time, Oregon was just okay, but Oregon State was going to the Rose Bowl. Then you, you can also look at, like, the Mike Riley era of Oregon State football. He won 28 regular season games over a three-season stretch. That's pretty good. He went 10-9-9. That's a really good era, but at the same time, uh, Oregon, you know, wasn't possibly, uh, wasn't that great, right? Uh, there was, you know, except for maybe 2012, that was a year where it kind of lined up. But, so I found two sweet spots for Oregon and Oregon State as program football programs. The first came in the year 2000. The Beavers went 11-1, and Dennis Erickson was lights out. We heard him on this show, uh, was it last week that Erickson came on? I think it, just, it feels like it was just yesterday. But we heard De- Dennis Erickson kind of talk about that time and putting it together, and he, and he spoke glowingly about, you know, what would have been different, what he should have maybe done differently, uh, you know, what, you know, the biggest mistake of his career, leaving leaving Oregon State and going to the 49ers, but 11-1 and in 2000. 
The Ducks were 10-2 and two at that same time. People remember that. Cover of Sports Illustrated. Um, you know, Mike Bellotti, 10-2. Dennis Erickson, 11-1. That's 21 combined wins between the programs. Pretty damn remarkable. That's one of the sweet spots. The second sweet spot came 12 years later, in 2012. Oregon State and Mike Riley won nine games in 2012. Chip Kelly went 12-1. Another... 21 combined victories. That's the record, the standing record for both programs in a single season, including bowl games, is 21 combined victories. Now, could Dan Lanning and Jonathan Smith match that in the next couple seasons? Could they break it? I think they could break it. And I think part of it is they could break it by using the expanded playoff. Like, I don't know if that's going to count because – the expanded playoff may offer somebody an opportunity to play, uh, you know, as much as three extra games if you include the conference championship game. And I, mean, I don't think it'd be unusual to see a team win 14 or 15 games uh, as the playoff expands. But there's a plausible scenario in my mind in which the football programs at Oregon and Oregon State would play their annual Civil War rivalry game in November, and then meet a week later in Las Vegas for a rematch with the conference title at stake. Because it could happen. We're not that far away. Like, I kept looking at it as the the season was taking shape on the horizon this year, and I kept thinking, you know, what needs to happen? But these two teams could end up in Vegas. Like, they both could go to Vegas. Like, how wild would that be to see them play at Autzen Stadium or Research Stadium in the regular season finale and then go, okay, uh, you got an undefeated against a one-loss team, and guess what? They're going to play again next week in Vegas for all the marbles. Like I, I feel like we're in another golden era. Like There have only been two before this, and that was 2000 and then 2012. And here we are like 11 to 12 years later. It seems like that's the cycle right now. Every decade or 11 or 12 years, that just lines up for the Beavers and it lines up for the Ducks. Dennis Erickson, Mike Bellotti then Mike Riley and Chip Kelly. And now it feels like Dan Lanning and Jonathan Smith have it going. Now they have competition in the Pac-12. They've got Utah and Kyle Whittingham. They've got, you know, Kalen DeBoer in Washington. They've got to deal with USC this year. You you have, um, you know, those programs all really good. And then on top of that, you have the meat of this conference, you know, improved. So a lot could go haywire. But Oregon's got a great recruiting class. They're going to celebrate that tonight at at Nike. And they got Bo Nix back. That's going to be part of the conversation. People are going to be toasting that tonight. I'm eager to see how Dan Lanning and his staff grow. And then at Oregon State, you know, you got DJ Uingalele in the transfer portal. You got better players, the most talented Oregon State team, I think, since Dennis Erickson's team. That, you know, Jonathan Smith's going to have that next year, and he's got continuity with his staff. So I'm kind of looking at Oregon and Oregon State. And I'm going, this Lanning and Smith thing could be epic. Like, I think both coaches will stick around. I, I'm not worried about either coach leaving in, in, like, the next three or four or five years. I think both coaches will be well-supported. I think they'll both win games. I think they're both competitors. I think we're about to see the golden era of Oregon and Oregon State football. Like, let's just say it, the golden era of college football in the state of Oregon. Like, I told Dan Lanning after the Civil War game, I said to him, I think you and Jonathan Smith are going to do this with big stakes for multiple years to come, and he told me, I hope so. 
I the, like the parties tonight. Like, go have fun if you're going to the parties. Go ha- go to Oregon's party if you're a Duck fan. Go to Oregon State's party if you're a Beaver fan. Go have a good time. Raise a glass because guess what? You don't often get to celebrate a 10-win season, but it is rare in this state's history to see 20 wins between those two schools. That's what they did this year. They came within one of the best football collectively that we've ever seen played. And it came in Dan Lanning's first season, and it came in Jonathan Smith relatively early in his tenure because I think he's going to stay forever at Oregon State. So I think it's really like the stage is set. There have been some other years where I looked and I went, hey, Willie Taggart, Gary Anderson, I don't know. This feels like it could be big, but it also feels like this is a little squirrely. And it turned out it was squirrely. Mario Cristobal, like we looked at what he did, but simultaneously Oregon State was bad during the early part of the Cristobal tenure. It wasn't competitive. So now we have Oregon State looking like a contender, Oregon looking like a contender, Two parties happening a few miles from each other tonight, both at 6 o'clock. Petros on the stage for Oregon State. Dan Landing and Oregon's people on the stage at Nike. It just kind of feels like the glow of college football is, um, is you know uh, going to be on display tonight and next season and beyond. You tell me if you agree with that. At John Canzano BFT on Twitter. Coming up next, Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor. We'll talk about signing day. Has it lost its luster? What are his takeaways from the the haul that the Beavers and the Ducks made today in an early signing period? Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. My next guest, Tyson Alger, is the author, editor, publisher, i5corridor.com. He covers... Sports up and down the Interstate 5 corridor. Uh, golden era of Oregon and Oregon State football. Tyson, I think we're in a uh, sweet spot here with both these programs playing very well. Yeah, it's 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 by far the best since I've been on the beat, and this will be going into like my 10th year or so. And I remember when I joined in 2013-14, uh, you know, people were still kind of coming off a little bit of the high of like the 2009 War of the Roses and and when uh, Mike Riley and, and what seemed like kind of the, the Helfrich Kelly era uh, were going to at least bring, you know, competitive teams to both sides. And then, you know, between the, the dip Oregon State took throughout basically all of the 2010s and, and Oregon's kind of uh, stepped back and then all, all the new coaches. Like, I, I just I just think this isn't a really good spot, and especially if you look at, like, what they brought in with signing day here. You know, Oregon is able to net, you know, the number eight, number nine class in the country, depending what service you're looking at. And Oregon State, while they're never quite as flashy, you know, they went out and got the pieces that they really needed to maintain competitive. And in a Pac-12, that's looking like it's going to be as competitive as as I've covered uh, during my time here on the beat. The, you know, Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith, do you have more questions for Smith or more questions for Lanning at this point? I think more questions for landing at this point, um, just because I mean, I was just looking at, I was just looking at the the list of all the players coming in with this signing class, and they're bringing in like thirty new guys again. I mean, this is this is going to be there's going to be a lot of the same main pieces. You know, Bo Nix is coming back, Bucky Irving's coming back, but there's going to be so much of this roster that's transformed, and I just really want to see what what that looks like. And that was a question that Landing was asked today. Is uh, you know, now that you got your guys in, and he made a point of saying, you know, it, it's been his team since the moment he got here, but this is a significantly, di- significantly different.
team than the one that he started with when he first got to Eugene. Uh, now, when you look at Jonathan Smith, you know, I, I think we know a lot about what that program is, what that program's made of. But I think the big question is, you know, what can you do as a front runner? Because for their entire time, it's just kind of been the, the building of that program or, you know, can they get out of the basement? Can they make a bowl game? But now after coming after a 10 win season, you know, this, this is a program that's going to have expectations, which is going to be a lot of fun to watch. Dan Lanning talked today about, you know, Eugene being a little bit of an outlier as a destination and, and trying to sell guys on the idea that it's the right place, even though maybe it's not the closest place for them. Um, it, it feels like he's maybe learning a little bit about what it is to be the head coach at Oregon. Jonathan Smith, meanwhile, I think he's got that familiarity. I want to pivot to Smith a little bit. Um, you know, when he came through the doors, I think we all thought he understands Oregon State. He's a fighter. He had some proof of performance, but I think this last season raised the bar for him. Where do you see the expectations for Jonathan Smith and Oregon State next season? I think that they they need to come in and expect to to compete or or win the conference title. You know, I think that they've kind of taken, um, you know, it's it's not even baby steps that they've taken forward because they went from seven to ten wins. But I, I just think that every time that they kind of have what you think would be an excuse to either plateau or take a step back or to let some of the other flashy teams go by them. They've always kind of managed to keep moving it forward. And I think that's really important for them to continue that progress, especially, um, you know, looking across the Pac-12. Like, I expect Arizona State to be a heck of a lot better with Kenny Dillingham as their head coach, and they had a lot of momentum today. Um, I, everyone else, uh, I really like what Washington's doing, and so I think I think it's going to be really tough for Oregon State to keep doing this. But you know, right now, I think you can make a pretty good argument that Jonathan Smith has been the, the best coach at doing his job uh, in the Pac-12 since he's been hired. Yeah, Dennis Erickson said as much. He said he thought Kyle Whittingham at Utah, Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, both knew who they were. We're talking to Tyson Alger, I five corridor. Uh, recruiting parties tonight, uh, you know, the Ducks will be on Nike's campus. Oregon State will be at the uh, Embassy Suites in Tigard. Which of those parties do you think will have the louder roars? Um, I'm going to say probably the one at Nike just because that's, uh, you know, the re- recruiting has kind of turned into just almost as part of an uh, important part of the season for the Ducks as the actual games they play. You know, it's anytime you go online or, or go on Twitter, it, it's it's half of what the conversation is. And so, you know, I, I think that's kind of become a big, uh, you know, it, it needs to be a party for Oregon. Whereas for, you know, Oregon State, you know, this, this isn't necessarily a, a day where they're always uh, landing the five-star with uh, the hat ceremony. But, you know, I think they can definitely take some pride in the team that they've built and, and the, the positions that they've addressed because I, I do think they have a very solid team going into next year. DJ Uingalele heads to Oregon State. His brother Mateo heads to Oregon. I think the bigger impact is probably going to be DJ because he plays quarterback, and that's a position Oregon State badly needs. What do you see as uh, you know the expectations, the ceiling for him in you know this next season at Oregon State? I, I think he can be really good. You know, this this was a guy that when he was in high school, people, I mean, he was a sure thing. Uh, people were, were saying that he was Cam Newton 2.0. He could run, he could pass, and at his size, uh, you know, 6'5", 245. I mean, he was just the prototypical type of quarterback. And he went to a school in Clemson where you were expected to contend for a national title as a true freshman. I mean, like that's the, the, the shoes he replaced was Trevor Lawrence. It's 
pretty pretty uh, lofty uh, expectations to be placed on that kid. And you know, I, I think just with the roster construction at Clemson and kind of some of the the rebuilding that's going on there. I think this is the perfect type of player for, for Oregon State to kind of go all in with. You know, that that talent hasn't disappeared. And I think with uh, Smith's offensive mind and uh, the fact that, like, they won games this year with absolutely no offensive attack, I, I think it's going to be a really nice combination for them. Yeah, and, I, you know, look, he's got a quarterback. We're going to see, you know, it's kind of like Kyle Shanahan in the Niners. Everybody goes, hey, he doesn't need a quarterback. It's the system until he doesn't have one. Jonathan Smith, uh, you know, had his Brock Purdy moment this season with uh, with his backup backup quarterback. But uh, Tyson Alger is with us. Um, look, the rest of this conference is formidable. I was talking to John Wilner today, uh, the Pac-12 guru, about the top of the conference. Where do you think the biggest competition or obstacle for Oregon and Oregon State sits when you talk about other schools? You know, that, that's a good one because, you know, I think I think what they're doing up in Seattle is, is going to be something that they're going to have to contend with because, I mean, for the last, you know, five, six, seven years, it feels like it's been Oregon kind of battling USC for a lot of uh, the, the top-level recruits on the West Coast and Washington kind of a sleeping giant in that regard. But you know, seeing what uh, seeing what Kenny's doing down at, in uh, Tempe, I, I I think that's very interesting because there's not that many great quarterbacks here on the West Coast, and he was able to secure one of those in Jaden Rashad in, in this uh, signing class, and so I, I think just them between like him at Arizona State or, or Coach Prime over in Colorado, just some of these kind of additions that are turning kind of long dormant teams into something that's going to be uh, have to that the Ducks and the Beavers are going to have to contend with day to day on the recruiting trail. I, I think that makes things a lot more interesting. Yeah, and, and I and I keep looking at the steps forward that Jonathan Smith is taking, and I look at Dan Lanning. Kind of, you know, I think he's getting his feet underneath him as a as a young coach. I think I expect to see better decision making, better play calling uh, in year two. But I I feel like. Tyson, I feel like we're in one of those golden eras. Like, you know, I looked back, and it was 21 combined wins in 2000. Uh, it was 21 combined wins in 2012. And we had 20 this last season. I don't think, you know, I think they can match the 21 or maybe even break it if they can, one or both can get to the playoff or the conference title game. I think I think we're, we're in a sweet spot with Bo Nix at quarterback at Oregon and DJ Cohen to Oregon State. Questions that you have in spring ball, what do you need to see from both programs? I, I think with Oregon, you want to see just some sort of development of, of uh, pass rush. You know, that was that was kind of what getting uh, uh, Mateo was, was big for them, is, is getting kind of an elite athlete on, on the side just because, I mean, the Ducks, you know, you took Kayvon Thibodeau off of that line and it turns out you're not, you're not rushing the quarterback quite as much. So I, I think they definitely need to just kind of, be able to have some playmakers there in that front seven, especially with how poor the defense was down down the stretch there. Um, and then with Oregon State, like honestly, I just want to you know, I want to make sure DJ comes in and he's healthy and he, and he looks the part because again, with the defense that they have and kind of the the leadership that they have coming back, I think he could be the missing piece for a team that you know if things go right, like I think they could actually make a playoff run, which seems insane to say when you consider that what was it just like six. Six years ago or so, they had one win, and it, it just seemed like that program was going to get, uh, you know, left and uh, left behind by some of the Pac-12 top top level programs. But you know, they're they're right there in that, and I think it's going to be a lot fun to watch. 
You can read him at i5corridor.com. I encourage you to subscribe. Check out Tyson Alger's daily offerings. Hey, I appreciate you making time for us. Uh, I saw also recently, did you play some racquetball? What's going on with you? Yeah, my uh, my old man and I, we were doubles partners in the uh, the Pacific Coast uh, squash doubles championships over the weekend, and uh, I wrote a I wrote a little post on that on on the corridor today. If uh, if people will indulge me a little bit, <laughs> help me out with you know racquetball, squash, pickleball. How is that game different? Yeah, so so squash is similar to racquetball. You're playing in a court and the objects that hit against the wall and not have your opponent, but the ball doesn't bounce nearly as much. So uh, most people have to be in better physical shape. I I, might, I may be the outlier there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, I, I grew up playing it. My dad was a former uh, national champion, and so it's, it's something that's kind of uh, been in our family for quite some time. A lot of camaraderie with dad playing some squash. Yeah. I like it. I like yeah, it. it. Tyson? Was, uh, it, it was a kick. <laughs> Tyson, I appreciate you joining us, man. Thank you. Hey, thanks, John. There he is, i5corridor.com, if you want to read Tyson and read about squash. Um, I thought it was racquetball. I don't know a lot about squash. You ever played squash, Stephen? Uh, no, never played it. Peter, uh, you just played squash? I have not. Okay. Go ahead, Stephen. I interrupted uh, you. No, I was going to yeah. say, I mean, all those sports with the rackets and the ball, you know, pickleball we always talk about, but those all confuse me. I don't know. I used to play racquetball when I was like a teenager. We uh, there was a club that I, the gym that I went to had racquetball, but some of these guys that played were just phenomenal players. And there was this one guy that used to play, and he was always looking for people to play against, so we would humor him by playing. He had an outstanding serve, but I, I remember two things about this guy. You know, I'm like a teenager, and he, you know, he's a grown man. He's serving the ball like a rocket. And uh, I remember, A, he was really hairy, and he wore tank tops. And, B, when he served, he then subsequently stood in the center of the court in the way, which was kind of a hindrance if you're trying to play against that guy. And so what I determined uh, that I, my best offensive strategy would be to return his serve right between his shoulder blades. And so I did that a few times until he got out of the way. I remember that, him just going, oh, you know, like, you know, drill him right between the shoulder blades with the racquetball. If you're going to stand in the middle of the court, that's what I'm going to do. Do you think uh, the hair I, Do you think the hair on him was on purpose, like he did that as a defense mechanism? Yeah, you didn't want to touch him because he yeah. was all sweaty. And, you know, you're in the court, you're kind of moving around each other. It was like, oh, I don't want to touch you, man. I don't know. Maybe he's just a hairy guy. But it was, it was good. Maybe that was his whole game, you know. He, he, he said, I'm going to stand in the middle of the court and look like Sasquatch. And then, you know, but I got him out of the way by hitting him with the racquetball. I learned that in baseball, though. You're going to crowd the plate. You know, you better uh, be prepared. Amen. <laughs> Leave it here. You got the PFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Tom Brady's retired. The Ducks and Beavers are partying, celebrating their signing day. Good for them. I always say, we always say in our family, you should celebrate the little things. Like, uh, you know, kid brings home a good report card, gets a uh, A on a paper, passes a test, plays a sport, scores a goal. Celebrate the little things. You know, too often, uh, too often in life, I think we sit around 
lamenting the things that go wrong and worrying about the things that we have no control over. So why not celebrate the things that do go right? Take the victories, man. Life's short. Look around. Like, you know, even when life is long, Bill Shonley, 93 years old, it still feels short. It goes fast. I mean, I think you, you got to take the wins when you have them. And so I don't blame Oregon and Oregon State for throwing a party to celebrate their signing day. Uh, you know, Oregon State at the Embassy Suites and Tigered with Petros on the mic and Oregon over at uh, the Tiger Woods Center on the Nike campus serving beer and wine and uh, celebrating their, their wins in the uh, – in the uh, recruiting world, like do that, you, you know, find a reason to celebrate and celebrate because, man, a lot of people sitting around worry about things that they have no control over, as the Stoics would say, uh, worrying about tomorrow when uh, and forgetting about today, wasting away today. So uh, celebrate the little things. Find something in your life. Find something in your family's ecosystem that is worth celebrating. You got a new puppy who went to the bathroom outside? Celebrate that, man. Take it. Take the wins is what I'm saying. Uh, some other news going on. Uh, Brady's out for good. Uh, Hall of Fame e- uh, executive, uh, people may remember, uh, Bobby Bethard, uh, who has appeared on this show and worked three decades as an NFL executive. He died at the age of 86 in Tennessee. Uh, he's a pro football Hall of Fame inductee as a contributor. Worked for five teams, including the Super Bowl champions in Miami and Washington. We had Bobby on the show years ago. Um, Also, uh, uh, Mike McCarthy in the news today. Cowboys uh, coach will call the plays next season. I'm sure he's thrilled about having Jerry Jones over his shoulder. Uh, He'll be the first head coach to call the plays since Jason Garrett did it more than a decade ago. Uh, McCarthy says he's going to run a version of the offense he used with the Packers. Uh, It's a logical step, they say. It'll be a scheme change, though, for Dak Prescott. Um, I think it'll be good for Dak in in some ways because I kind of felt like Dak got stale with Kellen Moore calling the plays. So maybe maybe this will be a good change, but I often think that this is the step that happens before someone gets fired by Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones gives them – another job duty, and puts them under the microscope. So keep an eye on Mike McCarthy with the Cowboys. If things don't go right for him next season, that could be it for him, but he's going to call the plays. But the, the thing that Jerry Jones needs to do, we've said this multiple times, Jerry Jones needs to fire the GM. Okay, He's the GM. Fire himself. That's the problem. Uh, also in the news today, um, a spectator, uh, died after a brawl broke out at a middle school basketball game in Vermont. 60-year-old man who participated in this uh, this uh, Donnybrook uh, passed away. State troopers got called into a, a report of a large fight involving spectators at a 7th and 8th grade boys basketball game. This is really sad. Um, but uh, apparently they are uh, investigating this. Uh, you never like to see that kind of stuff, obviously. And you know, some you, you go to a youth basketball game, nobody should die. Like this, this is uh, this is troubling in a in a way that our culture should not be okay with. Mike is in Portland. He wants to talk signing day. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, John. I just wanted to let you know, man, that today in Colorado, they got Lil Wayne walking around in the locker room. I don't know if you know who Lil Wayne is. 
But uh, he's yeah. one of the biggest uh, rap stars on the planet. Oh, yeah. Little Little Wayne and I hung out at a Super Bowl party one time. Okay, so I'm just saying that's part of Dion's strategy, man. He just yeah. bring in somebody like that, and then he said on their opening game day, he's going to have all kind of rap stars there on their home opener. Uh, man, the Ducks, all of these other Pac-12s, they can't gonna be able to compete with Colorado, man. Yeah, it, I mean. It, 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 it's interesting, Mike. I'm going to go down. I'm going to go to Boulder. I reached out to Colorado today. And I want to go to Boulder during the spring. I might take the show with me and broadcast from there. I want Dion on the show. I think it would be interesting to take a peek at what is going on there. So you think he's going to peel away from the rest of the Pac-12? Definitely. Definitely. Look, uh, this guy, you know, like his uniforms. They're going to have multiple uniforms. And I don't know if you know this or not, but he's uh, – uh, partnered up with um, the football player that's on uh, the AM um, show, the guy with the the wide teeth, uh, Strahan. Man, mm. Strahan is, is going to help provide uh, different jerseys like the, like the Ducks. They're going that route, man. Yeah, they're going to blow everybody you know away. That game, you know that game Password that used to be on TV? You would be phenomenal yeah. at it. Yeah. The yeah. password is Strahan. The guy with the wide teeth. Yeah, Michael Strahan. The guy with Got the it. wide teeth. So I'm just saying, man, the, the Ducks, man, they ain't going to have a chance. And I predict, I predict okay. right now that when uh, the Ducks and Colorado meet on that fourth game, Colorado going to beat them, man, because they're going to be battle tested. They're going to beat TCU. Hmm. I think it's going to be – look, I'm, I'm not going to say you're wrong, Mike, because I haven't seen anything yet. I don't know how good Colorado's going to be. But I think it's going to be a bigger lift for Deion Sanders out of the gates than, than people expect. I do think he's going to have great talent within, like, two seasons, and I think he's dangerous at Colorado. More of your phone calls coming up, 503-417-7575. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Deion Sanders, how many, you know, do you, do you buy what Mike's selling? Is he right? Not about the guy with the big teeth. Is he right about Colorado and Deion Sanders? 503-417-7575. You have to be worried about that because right now if I'm Oregon and Oregon State, I'm worried about Washington. I'm worried about Utah. I'm worried about USC. I'm worried about maybe some other teams in the Pac-12. I'm not I'm not yet worried about Coach Prime. Steven, it should should Oregon and Oregon State be worried about Colorado? Not yet. You're right that they shouldn't yet, but if they go and they compete with TCU or beat TCU in week one I think yeah and I think Mike's on to something just the fact that they will be good and you know they're gonna bring in talent uh, it's just a matter of how good of a coach Dion is out of the get-go how good they are but I, I'm with you I think it'll take another you know a year or two for the real contenders but I mean I like everything that Dion's been doing he's dangerous is he right though the password is Strahan the guy with the wide teeth. I love that. In a sports Mark? world, like that's the obvious answer, right? Like we all knew who he was talking about. <laughs> Mark in Portland is called in. Mark, what's on your mind? Hey, uh, 
I don't know if, if he's right or not, but let's see if he wants to put his money where his mouth is. Let's let's me and Mike bet on this game. Hundred bucks, five hundred bucks. The game, Colorado at Oregon in in 2023. He thinks Colorado is going to come to Oregon and beat Oregon. So can he put his money where his mouth is? <laughs> I mean, that spread's going to be what 15, 16 points. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think it could be a bit of an eye opener. In year well, one for Colorado. You're not going to turn the, the worst team in the league into the best team of the league in, in October of next year. It's just it's just unrealistic. I mean, they could come up here and upset Oregon. Anybody can lose on any given day, but that's, that's just Mike attacking Oregon with nonsense. I mean, to think that uh, Colorado's just going to waltz in here the first year he's coached, he's, he's got to take a couple of years to, you know, lay down a foundation and, and reconstruct uh, what has been a horrible football program for the last few years. And I, I think he's yeah. going to do a great job. But to think he's going to come in here in the fourth game of next year and beat, you know, the one of the favorites to win the conference is, is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, year one, after I saw this, before I saw the schedule, I went, could they be bowl eligible? After I saw the schedule, I went, no, they're not going to be bowl eligible, but how many games are they going to win? And I kind of think uh, that they might win four or five, but I think the Pac-12 is going to be tough for Colorado in year one of Deion Sanders. But I won't be surprised if year two or three they are they are uh, you know a dangerous team. Jesse's in Portland. What do you think, Jesse? I think he'll be lucky to get 500. Uh, and... Uh, and I think he's going to have a lot of growing pains. And that last caller has actually nailed it on the head. Uh, you're not going to turn uh, like the losingest program into the winningest program. It could it happen like in the next like two or three years. Like yeah, he could get closer to that. But but uh, but he's, he got a lot of growing pains. And you know what? He's going to lose to TCU. Let's just get that figured out. So uh, they're not going to you know they're not going to beat TCU. Uh, they're gonna have lots. Of, they're gonna have like a lot of losses, and it's gonna be a lot of him explaining exactly that. Like, oh, we're we're going through growing pains. We're learning. Uh, we gotta give it time because he's got a winning attitude. So he's never gonna be defeated. Like, you're, even if you have like uh, a not not a good season, like it's it's never gonna keep him down. He's always gonna be bouncing back and coming back. So uh, I believe over time he will turn that program around, and it'll start right now. It's already started, so it'll happen. But the dude's not going undefeated. Like that's not. Like, the Ducks don't even do that, and they're trying, you know what I'm saying? So, like, you know, yeah. it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, I actually, I, look, I like the messaging mostly from from Coach Prime. I think sometimes he gets a little bit too much in character, but I think the messaging is solid. Like, you know, I've been kind of c- closely watching what he's saying to recruits. I like that he is coaching more than just the football players, for example. Like, he's coaching them as people and not just as football players. He's talking to him about discipline. He's talking to him about going into the classrooms. I saw uh, a video of him talking about why uh, it's important that they're not wearing flip-flops and an untucked shirt into class and sitting in the back and how he's going to check on them. And I think there's some little messages that Deion Sanders is sending to his players that I really appreciate. That said, I'm looking at his schedule and I'm having a hard time finding wins. And they're not going on the road and winning at Autzen Stadium unless Oregon, you know, uh, face plants. 
They're going to struggle in the non-conference. I think I have them starting at best. I think I have them starting with one, uh, one and two in their non-conference games. Then they start conference play with Oregon and in USC. Like, no. Like, there's a good chance he's one and five out of the gates. And I'm kind of looking at his his schedule, and I'm going, you know, upside. Yeah, maybe he gets to six. That's. I think that would be a brilliant season for Deion Sanders in year one. Get bowl eligible. That would be a lot to celebrate. Rick George's athletic director would look like a hero. But I think the more realistic thing for Deion Sanders is probably the downside of his season is probably a three-win season. So I think he's somewhere between three and six. So if you split the difference there, you're looking at, you know, four and a half. And uh, that's my over-under for Deion Sanders is four and a half wins. What would you put as realistic, early realistic expectations, though? Because I think – fans would say bowl eligibility would be the expectations. I think that if you walk into a casino and you see six on the board as the over-under and total wins for Colorado, I think if you bet six or over, uh, I think you're you're giving away money. I just think that's, that is a big risk. Yeah. I think that there may be an opportunity. I thought about it right when I saw their schedule. All right, so they're at TCU to start. Then, then it's Nebraska at home. Very likely they're 0-2 to start. Uh, maybe they get the Nebraska game. Like That would be a huge win for them, but probably not. Uh, then Colorado State. So it's TCU, Nebraska, Colorado State. I'm giving them one win in there, and, and it might be 0-3. But then it's at Oregon against USC. So in their first five, I see maybe one win. And it may be zero. They might be 0-5. They might be 1-4. Then they go to Arizona State. Eh, I'll, I'll call that one a coin toss, two first-year head coaches. Then it's Stanford. I'm going to give that as a win. So at most, I have them with three wins with five games to go. At most, three wins. And it might be two. It might be one. So let's just say they're at three wins with five games to go. They're not going to win at UCLA. They're not going to beat Oregon State. Maybe they could beat Arizona. Maybe, you know, so let's put them at four wins with Arizona. Then it's at Washington State, at Utah. I'm being generous here. There's no more than five wins on this schedule. Like, and I'm being generous. And it's probably more like a three or four win season for Deion Sanders in year one. And that's okay. It's an improvement. The trajectory trajectory will be there. But, I, you know, I haven't looked on the board right now. But I guess the hype um, is going to push this as like a five and a half. And I think the under is the right bet for Colorado. So looking at it right now, uh, FanDuel does have one lineup for college football win totals. It is Colorado. Uh, it's four and a half right now, and it's just to the under. So the over is plus 114. So they're right They're right where you are right now. Yeah, I agree with that. I saw another one that was five and a half, and I think that's fool's gold. I think When the schedule came out, I, I just everybody's schedule, I started looking for, okay, where are the obvious wins and losses? And it's not foolproof, but I'm just, I think that their schedule is really hard. And, and if they get off to an 0-5 start, it makes the rest of that season really difficult because I think then you're dealing with Deion Sanders just trying to get control of his locker room. He's got a bunch of transfers. He's got a bunch of new players. He's preaching a lot of process, and he's not getting results. I mean, I, you know, everybody remembers Jonathan Smith coming through the doors at Oregon State. It's not all that different at Colorado, except I think Colorado's going to have a little more talent than Jonathan Smith had. Cam is in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. He wants to talk about Tom Brady. Cam, what do you got? 
Well, John, I just wanted to call in in an abundance of caution. Sometimes in the modern times we live in, we hear some misinformation, some things that aren't true. I woke up this morning hearing that the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL had retired, and I was scratching my head because that actually happened in 1994 when Joe Montana retired. I'm sorry if Brady has more rings. I'm not buying the hype. He played in an era when longevity was a lot more possible. He played in an era when you couldn't do the things to the quarterback you could do when Joe was playing. Joe got that nasty blindside hit, like broke his elbow or something, and shortened his career. But I'll tell you what Joe Montana has never done. He's never lost a Super Bowl to Eli Manning, let alone two. In fact, he's never lost a Super Bowl to anybody. In fact, he's never even thrown an interception in a Super Bowl. Joe Montana was the greatest quarterback who ever played the game. And I wanted to just ask you, and I'll take your response off the air as I usually do, it's two minutes to go in the Super Bowl. You're the head coach, John. Uh, you've got to score six points in two minutes, seven to win the game. I want to know why is it Joe Montana for you? And then on the other side of the coin, <laughs> why would you say Tom Brady? I think there's an argument to be made on both sides, obviously. I yeah. have one particular viewpoint, but I'm not saying there isn't an argument. So yeah. i like to hear you pick at that. And just for the record, for anybody listening, Joe Montana is the greatest quarterback who ever played, bar none. Forget about it. He never lost. He never had anybody who, you know, pulled a fast one on him once, let alone twice in the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah like Brady went to the Super Bowl ten times. He won seven of them, six times with the Patriots uh, as a winner, and then the Buccaneers. Um, look, I think you could you can construct an argument for both guys with two minutes to go. And frankly, if you leave Tom Brady or Joe Montana with two minutes in the ball, you're losing. You're losing both those games. Like we all know that feeling of dread when uh, I don't know if you have a bet on a game or maybe it's your team and the other team has possession, and the other team has a killer at quarterback, you're done. Like, I felt that way as a Niner fan when Russell Wilson had the ball and the Seahawks had 90 seconds to go. Like, you know, the old Russ, not the new Russ. Uh, Joe Montana did that to other people. Too much time. Too much time. You can't leave that guy any time. You don't leave him the opportunity because he will beat you. Now, let's. I, I think, you know, Brady played for so long. And won so many Super Bowls, it's very difficult for me not, even as a Niner fan, to look at Tom Brady and go, hey, his record puts him as the greatest of all time. But you're not going to get an argument from me if you pick Joe Montana. I mean, there's several guys that I think you could put in that conversation, but those are the two that come to mind. I also think, you know, you could the same criticism that existed with Brady in New England, hey, he only did it with the Patriots, six of the wins, you know, all that stuff, but... Brady went over to the Buccaneers and won a Super Bowl. Joe Montana went over to the Kansas City Chiefs, did not win a Super Bowl. That would have been, to me, the moment where you could really make this argument is if Joe Montana had bounced over to the Kansas City Chiefs, as he did, late in his career as the Niners picked Steve Young. And if Joe Montana had bounced over and won a Super Bowl, like now we're having a, a totally different conversation. I think Brady flipping uniforms, doing it without Belichick, was uh, a remarkable accomplishment on a number of fronts uh really really fun fun discussion by the way speaking of fun tomorrow we are broadcasting this show live from spirit mountain casino we'll be in the sports book of spirit mountain 3 p.m to 6 p.m we're going to be joined by dennis dixon former oregon duck he'll be with us for part of the show especially the five o'clock hour steven will be out there on site as well i'm told anna will be there stop by spirit mountain if you're anywhere near there Tomorrow, 
3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Come see us. Give me a fist bump. They're going to be giving away a whole bunch of prizes. Uh, they're going to be having drinks. It's going to be like a recruiting party without the recruits and out without the football program. But we'll be live there tomorrow broadcasting. Also on tomorrow's show, Oregon Senator, or excuse me, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden will be on the program. Uh, he's trying to get a WNBA team to the state of Oregon. This is a, a big deal to Wyden, Senator Wyden. He's going to join us tomorrow. He always loves coming on. Uh, I'll pick his brain on that front, and I'll ask him on the gambling front. Why can't uh, you know? Why can't uh, all the gambling entities in the state of Oregon or nationally get on the same page? You know how how concerned is he with NIL legislation? Does that belong? Is that a congressional uh, issue? Is that uh, something that lawmakers should get involved with? Transfer portal NIL. Uh, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden on tomorrow's show as we broadcast live from Spirit Mountain Casino, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. I want you to leave it right here. You get the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I saw Rob Gronkowski welcoming Tom Brady to the uh, two times retired club. <laughs> Second time. Uh, I guess, the, you know, Gronk won four Super Bowls alongside Brady. Why don't we say, like, Gronk is the best tight end of all time? Why do we reserve that only for quarterbacks when we talk about the GOAT, greatest of all time? Uh, you know, in basketball, we don't define by position. We talk about the players as... Um, you know, just players. Michael Jordan, we compare him uh, with uh, with LeBron or whatnot. Uh, and by the way, when LeBron does retire, can you imagine that ceremony, how that's going to be? And here's the other thing. Like, I, there's something going on with LeBron and Bronny and all this stuff that people have talked about. Like, I get he wants to play alongside his son, but there's part of me that's a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of, what LeBron wants, LeBron gets when it comes to his son. Because I think it could be a really unfortunate position for uh, Bronny James to end up in the NBA and not be good enough to compete in the NBA and get embarrassed. And I'm wondering what you think of that, both Peter and Steven, when you, when you kind of look at, you know, this is unprecedented, really. Like, Ken Griffey Sr., when... Ken Griffey Jr. came into the league. Like, baseball is just. It's not like Ken Griffey Sr. was going to will his son, his namesake, into the league and that teams were going to go, well, he's hitting 082, but we'll promote him to the big leagues. No, Jr. like clobbered it and left no doubt. And people were like, you know, he's better than his dad. It's different with Bronny. And, and I get that LeBron wants the nostalgia of playing alongside his son, but. I don't know how you get around this. This is like Frank Sinatra Sr. and Frank Sinatra Jr. Like, you know, this is like, you know, Joe Frazier and Marvis Frazier. Like, I don't think Bronny is going to be good enough to be an NBA player. I think he's a good high school player. He might be an okay or good college player. I don't think he's an NBA talent. And especially after just one year of college, which is the plan, right? Like, that's what they've already basically said is he's going to play one year of college and then go to the NBA 
he may become an NBA player. He is a really good athlete. He has the bloodlines, obviously, with LeBron. But to me, like he doesn't seem like an NBA player right out the gate. But of course, if you're LeBron and you're at this age and you're still playing the way he's playing, like he's using his leverage. And it shouldn't be surprising though, John, because LeBron's done this everywhere he's gone. You know, when he was in Cleveland, he basically ran Cleveland. When he went to Miami, he wanted to run Miami. Pat Riley said, "No, you can leave. Like you were, you're not running this organization. I am." And so he left, and now he's running the Lakers. And basically, he can do whatever he wants. Like, so it's not surprising to me that he's doing this. Like, this is LeBron's mo. It's always has, always has been. But like, I'm with you. Like, it is weird. It's weird that he's like, my son will play with me. It's 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 not even about Bronny. It's LeBron about LeBron. It's like weird, weird narcissistic. It's like when you meet messed up parents and their kids aren't even people to them. They're just extensions of themselves. I'm getting that vibe a little bit in this situation. Yeah, and I think when you uh, when you look at the scouting report. I was I was looking for the high school scouting report on LeBron James, and I found one. And this is from the he was in the class of 2003. And uh, Scout.com wrote a report, and they said he's one of the best high school players in the last decade. Uh, he's gifted. It's scary as a scorer. He has good range, which is weird because he never really shot the three beyond about 35, 36 percent. Terrific passer, unselfish talents on another level um you could list the schools that would offer him until you're blue in the face but this is the best high school to nba prospect uh that has come along since it became fashionable to make the jump okay that's not Bronny. that's that's his dad and yet he you know we're here talking about Bronny as if he's going to make that jump i don't think it's fair to the kid i'm a little worried about how this story unfolds because, again, I brought up the example of Frank Sinatra Jr., Frank Sinatra Sr. I brought up the example, uh, you know, of Marvis Frazier getting into the ring. He w- it turns out he wasn't Joe Frazier. You know, like there was only one Joe Frazier. There's only one LeBron. Uh, I worry that this will end disaster, you know, end in a disaster. Anna's popped into the studio. Um, there's no way around this. Like, if LeBron wants his son to play in the NBA and they want to be on the same team, that's going to happen in a couple years here. And that kid's nowhere near ready, Anna. Is that bad parenting by LeBron? Uh, I don't know because you'd have to think that he knows his son, right? And so maybe he sees something in him in his ability to rise to the challenge. Like, by the same token, you don't want to count him out. Like, right. you don't want to say, oh, this kid's being set up for failure. I, I don't want to say that because you want to give him a chance to, you know, rise to the occasion. He's the number 34 prospect uh, according to 24-7's composite rankings, okay, in his class. And uh, I'm looking at that thinking if he's not LeBron James' kid, is he, like, number 75? Like, you know, what is that worth? Uh, players can evolve, sure. Don't want to count them out. I don't know if there's any way around it. See, I don't know if there's a solution for it, but I'm kind of wrestling with, is this good parenting by LeBron or bad parenting? <laughs> well, I guess the argument can be made, how much would he learn or gain by going and doing one or two years at a college? How much does that really teach He's going to do at least one. Yeah. But I just wonder, like, if... Okay, there's part of me that thinks, like Peter said, this is about LeBron wanting to play alongside his son, and he doesn't have four or five years to wait for him. Because mm-hmm. the right thing to do would be to let the kid go to college, dictate what happens, 
uh, get to the NBA if he merits getting to the NBA. Because what you don't want if you're LeBron is your kid to get to the NBA and just get destroyed. Right. Not ready. Right. But I think Look, Peter's yeah. right on, though, because there's never been the father-son duo in the NBA. Like, you talked about uh, the Griffies, and I believe it's probably been done in hockey, I would believe, as well. But it's never been done in the NBA, so LeBron wants to add to his legacy. Like, I do think it is a LeBron play of, I want to be the first to do this. At the same time, uh, to you know, because it, it takes... You know, uh, like you got Cecil Fielder and Prince Fielder, Bobby Bonds, Barry Bonds, not at the same time, but Ken Griffey Jr. and Sr., they did that. Um, you got the Boons, you know, the Boone family. You got Vladimir Guerrero Sr. and Jr., but not at the same time. Uh, you know, you, you obviously have Del Curry with two sons in the NBA, but not at the same time. Uh, Rick Barry's got, you know, John and Brent and Drew, but he wasn't in the league. Doc Rivers coached his kid, but didn't play alongside him. So, yeah, I mean, this is something new. You know, Michael Thompson, Blazer fans remember, Clay Thompson, you know. But this is, you know, this is new. And I worry that it's bad parenting. I hope I'm wrong. I would love to be wrong. I would love for Bronny James to come into the NBA and be a pretty good player and stand on his own merits. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, He's got his dad's name, LeBron James Jr., so they call him Bronny, and he has his dad sort of pulling him into the league, and, you know, somebody's going to somebody's gonna take a, ga- a flyer on that, and probably with LeBron whispering in their ear, I'll come play for you if you pick my son, and I'll play for, you know, I'll play for the minimum, but you got to pick my kid, and so that's how he's getting into the league, and I, and I don't know. I just, I wouldn't do that to my kid. I wouldn't, but I don't have that mindset. I'm not thinking my legacy. Would you yeah. want? Would you want a, your team to do that? As, as a fan of the team, would you want your team to do that? If it look, if you let's just say, Blazer fans, let me throw this out. Blazer fans, LeBron gets in Joe Cronin's ear, says, "Hey, I'm going to be a free agent. My kid's going to be in the draft. You pick him with your first round pick. Ensure that he's with your team. I will sign for the minimum." You get dad and son. The problem is you're getting LeBron at, like, 50 years old or whatever he is. <laughs> Still a pretty good player. Like, I think a lot of teams would do that. Would you Would you support that? That's the better question. Would you support it? You guys are more Blazer fanny than I am. Uh, yeah, I would. LeBron's good. LeBron's that good. And I think, you know, if you're really trying to win a championship, he would help. So I, I'm not against it. All right. So Portland with LeBron, Bronny and LeBron. And then where does it end, though? Now, all of a sudden, is he going, hey, he's got to play. Can't yeah, just sit on I'm the saying. bench. One-year deal, man. One-year deal. <laughs> yeah, he's got to play. Like, Bronny needs to be – He's not, not only does he need to play, he needs to start because I need to be on the court with him. But that's the whole thing, too, with his college recruitment as well. Like, why – you really think LeBron's not going to be a part of, like, the t- talking to the coaches and, like, you need to play my son? Like, I can't I can't see LeBron not doing that. Like, it's, gonna, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's such a crazy, crazy thing that I cannot wait to see. And, and here's the other thing. Like, Dana Altman, Oregon coach, was on yesterday's show. If you missed it, get the podcast. But I had people after the show say, why didn't you ask him about Bronny? Well, he can't talk about him because he is a potential recruit. So he's not allowed. I can't – I'm not going to ask him and have him go, well, I'm not allowed to talk about recruits. He can't talk about Bronny. But Oregon has not offered him. I find that interesting, given the Nike connection. If LeBron James Jr. was good enough, if he was just a no-brainer college player – Oregon and everybody else would have already offered. 
And I think it's going to be a bit of a circus. I agree. I think, you know, there's going to be incredible pressure to play him and set him up for success. And I just don't know if that is conducive to winning, especially at Oregon, where Dana Alban has a great class coming in next year. I think they're going to be pretty good. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. This show is a community. It really is. I know this because I look up and I see who's holding, who wants to talk today. And I always see the names and uh, the people who are holding on the uh, the callers that have called in. And today, Josh from the Shoe Mill Shoe Stores has called in. He has a take on uh, LeBron James and Bronny. Josh, what's going on, man? Hey, I, I'm uh, just driving back from Washington Square. And uh, actually... The winner of the BFT auction, I helped them today with their prize, Todd nice. and Debbie. They, nice. You have the nicest listeners. I'm not kidding. The people that win your prizes, the best people. Thank you, man. I always say yeah. that the listeners of the show are smarter than other sports radio shows. I think they're better looking. They're more well-adjusted. Often they're taller than other shows. I've seen some of these other shows. Scrawny, dumb, ugly people listening oh to some of these gosh. other shows. All right, but wow, wow, jeez, <laughs> Josh from Shoe Mill. <laughs> uh, well, um, I mean, I what's on your mind with LeBron, LeBron and Bronny? Well, I was just thinking, like from a family business standpoint, like basketball is LeBron's family business, right? Yeah. And. I see this in our industry because there's a lot of people that are like family, generational shoe stores, things like that. And there's sometimes the next generation is just not up to the current generation. And that's clearly the case here. And for business, from a business standpoint, you know, it depends on which team decides to draft them. If they want to be a circus, then they can do that. But if they're going to win, if they expect to win, drafting Brawny and then getting LeBron is not a winning combo. It's a circus combo. It's entertainment. And so at what point does this cease to be athletics and about winning and more about entertainment slash WWE? I don't know. Can I ask you a question? Because, I, you know, when we talk about your stores and the shoe mill story, it's your grandparents who start the first store. Then yeah. your dad runs the business, and you guys are kids running around the stores, and now you guys are running the business. We always hear about the first generation building it, the second generation elevating it, and then the third generation just blowing it when it comes to uh, entrepreneur and business how do you guys like what did your dad do to prepare you guys oh we're well on our way to blowing it john i mean there's just no <laughs> two ways about it <laughs> no but it's seriously like my dad you know he had to put his stamp on the business to make it bigger than my grandpa did right so he grew the business to to four or five stores something like that my brothers and i are on a growth plan as well we we want to, I mean, part of it is proving ourselves to our, our family legacy. And either you have it or you don't. And, in, you know, so uh, how my dad prepared us was, you know, giving us the tools but letting us be ourselves and without the pressure to have to be anything. You know, we didn't have to stay in the business. And poor Bronny, it's like he's got the name and he's stuck with, carrying that legacy and those are big shoes to fill but like, don't you like think don't you yeah. think yeah. Uh, big shoes to fill yeah i got it good work Anna <laughs> sorry, here. Sorry, um 
don't you think there is room here, though? I mean, granted, you know, your dad prepared you guys and had you around the business, and it's not like he just threw you in. Kind of, you know, in the same way, like, Bronny's been around LeBron. Like, he's been around basketball. It's not like he's being thrown in um, with cold feet. It's obviously been a big part of his life since he was probably less than a year old. So don't you think there's room here for him to rise to the occasion? Oh, absolutely. The question is going to be, does he have the work ethic? And I'm not saying he doesn't, but does he have what it takes to make up for perhaps lack of natural talent? Does he have the work ethic to pick up where natural talent ends to take it to that next level? Because he has every opportunity. It's just, does he have the, uh, what it takes to, to go to the next level? The grit. I don't know. Yeah, yeah grit. That's a good word. Yeah, good word. Hey, I appreciate you, man, uh, and thank you for taking care of the BFT Foundation uh, auction winners in the Radiothon and uh, taking care of that uh, auction lot. Shoe Mill, appreciate and, and you. And sorry, I, t I turn everything into a family business thing, but it's when okay. you're in a family business, that's all you have. I bet you eat it, you drink it, you guys talk about it over dinner. Every Yep, every holiday. My mom loves it. <laughs> every time I run into you guys, you look at my shoes and you go, what are you wearing? What's going on down <laughs> yep. there? Thank you, Josh from Shumel calling in. Look, um, great perspective. But here's the thing. Like, okay, it's a family business. At some point, dad's going to transition out, just like grandparents transitioned out of the Shumel empire, and dad had to take it over, and then dad transitioned out. Now the sons are running the Shumel businesses, right? Mm -hmm. So at some point, Bronny's going to have the ball in his hands, and dad's not going to be on the court with him. Like, I know that first season, he's going to have the ball, dad's going to set green for him, and dad's going to go, let me do this for you. Give me the ball back. Like, let me show you how to do this. It, it's, uh, I kind of, I'm fascinated by this. This is a documentary. This is a, this is a documentary I would watch. Like, somebody, I, I'm sure, is filming all of this now, just like everything's filmed today. I want to see, like, the transition of Bronny James into NBA player. Does he have what it takes? And beyond that. And and let's think about this. I I brought up baseball as the example. Ken Griffey Jr. and Sr. There's only so much you can do as dad when you're Ken Griffey Jr. When, dad, when your son's in the batter's box. You can't hit for him. You can't do that. There, you can't do it in the NFL. You're, if your kid is out there, if Tom Brady had a kid that, you know, was old enough to play in the NFL with him, Tom Brady could say, well, I want him on my team, but he's got to block somebody. In basketball... Is it different? Is it different, Stephen? Is it different, Peter? Can you put a player on the court who isn't quite ready to play and hide him? If they're good at anything else, yes. Um, you know, I think if I think if Bronny figures out how to play really good defense or something like that, like you can hide him on the court and he doesn't look like a complete disaster. But I think when you get to the NBA, you have to be pretty good at most everything. So I think yeah. uh, it's going to be tough in that situation. But, I mean, because he is a good athlete. I will say that. Like, watching him, he is an elite athlete. Uh, he's not very big. That's going to be a problem. But he is getting better as an athlete as well. So, I mean, that that's the one thing he has going for him is that he has that, you know, LeBron James athleticism that will translate to basketball if he ever figures out the rest of the part. I think the only thing he can do is hope to be a great defender because I had an NBA GM tell me one time, I said, you know, Help me out. And, Anna, you, you brought this up. We were watching the Last Chance You documentary, and you were like, what's the difference between the guys who make it in the NBA and maybe the guys who just miss? And 
that, that NBA GM told me that every single guy in the NBA can do at least one thing really well. Maybe they're a shot blocker. Maybe they're a passer. Maybe they're a great ball handler. Maybe they're a great shooter. You have to have one thing where you are, like, elite at to be on a roster. What is Bronny James' thing? Or do you look at a – I mean, let's look at the Blazers' roster as a comparison. Peter, I think you're qualified to break this down more than anybody. You look at this Blazers' roster. There are some weak links on this Blazers' roster. Give me an example of a player that you see out there. You go, eh, on most winning rosters, maybe he wouldn't be part of the team. Yeah, as much as I'm hyped on him, uh, Shaden Sharp looks like he's wearing a blindfold playing defense specifically. Yep. And yet he's playing 20 minutes a night. But he can dunk, and yep. he's got athleticism. And for like a really good team, he's probably not playing a lot. Oh, oh no, not at all. Not at all he wouldn't be. Yeah. But I'll tell you, Bronny James, the one thing he's going to do really well, jersey sales. <laughs> that. And, and that matters. <laughs> Bring him to Portland. Put him in the carpet jersey. I regret. I haven't watched him play at all. Does he appear to love the game? Like, if you got inside his head right now and you could have an authentic conversation with him, do you think that his role as Bronny James, do you think he sees it as a blessing or a curse? And does he have, does he have a passion for the game? No, nobody knows. We brought on Eric Sondheimer, the prep reporter of the L.A. Times, who's covered, you know, Sierra Canyon and covered yeah. LeBron James' kid this whole time. He said he can't. You can't talk to him. They they won't let you even have a conversation with him. <laughs> that nobody talks to him. Huh. They protect him. He's got you know people. He's got a personal bodyguard. You know you, nobody knows. The guy could be a genius. <laughs> he might like you know maybe you, you, we hear him talk and we go wow for a kid that age he's just so mature. He has he's worldly. Uh, or maybe he talks and we're like, oh, no, that's not happening. When nobody knows. That's, I think that's part of the problem. I think, look, I, I get it. It's probably not easy to be Frank Sinatra Jr. That's, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's really difficult. You know, Michael Jordan had kids, too. They were okay as college players. Maybe could be a college player. I remember one of his kids played in... Uh, a game at Moda Center. Yeah, what was uh, that? Uh, what was that? Illinois. What was that? UCF, Central Florida. Yeah, and it was like, oh, that's Michael Jordan's kid. That ain't Michael Jordan. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it was pretty evident. But you know, I don't think Michael Jordan was interested in trying to elevate his kids beyond maybe what they were qualified to do. What? It just feels like that's what they're doing. I mean, I, look at Tiger Woods. I think it's look bad at his parenting. kid. I think it's bad parenting. You know, look at the pressure that's on his kid. He's yeah. out there playing with his dad I, i'm not saying it's easy but i think it's bad parenting if there if it proves that Bronny james is not ready and he gets embarrassed i'm gonna look at lebron and go you did that to your kid and that kid's gonna walk around his whole life people are gonna go oh you only got to the nba because your dad i wish that he would leave him on his own merit to get to the league and not mm-hmm. you know have this whole orchestration going on behind the scenes I want you to leave it here. The 5 at 5 is coming up top of the hour. We're broadcasting tomorrow from Spirit Mountain Casino, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. I want you there. Come out and have some fun. Check out the sports book. They're great restaurants. Uh, All out at Spirit Mountain tomorrow, 3 to 6 p.m. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Do you ever listen to a song, and I'm sure this has happened to you, 
uh, you listen to a song and for years and years and years you either mishear the lyrics and you don't know what the person is singing about and then you find out or you read the lyrics and you have no idea. Yeah, that's how most songs are for me, actually. <laughs> I know. I, called, I mean, it's called the, the Mandela effect. The what? The Mandela effect. It is? Yeah. Really? Yeah, because of Nelson Mandela. People thought he was dead. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Jeez. So I want you to listen to this Def Leppard song. Oh, I'm going to ask you what Def Leppard is singing about here. Oh, no. Okay? Don't look it up. Okay. Um, uh, here uh, I'm gonna get to the part where I uh, I need you to weigh in. Oh, this is an easy one. Yeah. Everybody knows this song, right? What was that last line? Living like a lover with a red iPhone. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead. And, it's, it's radar phone. With yeah. a radar phone. With Whatever a radar that phone. is. Yeah. Living like a lover with a radar phone. <laughs> this was pre-iPhone. <laughs> Way pre-iPhone. So how did, how did Def Leppard know that Apple would invent a were, red iPhone? They were prescient. <laughs> That is one of the most misheard lyrics that that is out there. Uh, other songs, do you have one that comes to mind that you're embarrassed by or maybe you thought, you know, I'm always entertained. Uh, but for the longest time, Jimmy Fallon tweeted out, for the longest time, he thought, uh, you know, when it, like when doves cry, uh-huh. uh, he thought the lyric was, maybe I'm just like my mother. She never sits inside. <laughs> and the real lyric is, maybe I'm just like my mother. She's never satisfied. She never sits inside. <laughs> Jimmy Fallon said he took him years to get that. Michael Jackson, Billie Jean. I still don't actually know what the real lyrics are because I always just sing, the chair is not my son. <laughs> <laughs> the chair is not my son? The chair is not my son. Are you kidding me? I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. This is a big hole in my game, okay? Uh, I know. I know because when you, you do this quite frequently. I know. All right? Well, you're telling me. <laughs> like if I had you. <laughs> It's the kid is not my son. Anyway. Long way down. I don't know if I have time for this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think you, you forgot how the long. The chair is not my son. Uh, Peter or Stephen, is there a song that comes to mind for you that you have misheard the lyrics for? Um, I don't know. Not that I can think of off the top of my head, but I have because I've done this research before. I've looked up the Mandela effect for tons of things. Mm-hmm. Movie, movies is a big one as too. There's movie quotes that people quote all the time in movies that are false. Yeah, like the uh, big, like yeah. Field of Dreams. Uh-huh. Like, what's the famous line of Field of Dreams? If you build it, they'll come. Right. That's what you think, but he says, "If you build it, he will come." Mm. Oh, see. Mm. 
technicality. Uh, Peter Gabriel's in your eyes. All my instincts. In all my fame. People have misheard that as all my end, E-N-D, stinks. All my end stinks. (laughs) All my instincts. No, that's not the lyric. Uh, Misheard lyrics. Um, I don't know. I, you know, how about Bon Jovi living on a prayer? Take my hand and we'll make it, I swear. A lot of people think he says, take my hand and we'll make out square. <laughs> okay. I think it's really hard. Like, cause a lot of these songs, they just like some people sing real lyrics uh-huh. and other people go, well, I need to fit it in there. And they don't make a sensical sense. Yeah. You know? Am yeah. I the only one that like, if I don't know the lyric, I look it up. Cause that's what I do. Like if I don't know lyrics, I look it up. So I know yeah. the right lyrics. Cause it really bothers me when I'm just guessing. I just let Anna sing the songs in the car, and I quietly laugh to myself mm-hmm. as she sings the wrong lyrics. If I ever have a question, I'm just going to text Anna. Hey, Anna, what's yeah. the lyrics to this song? Yeah. Thanks. Oh, and she'll I just... will undoubtedly give you the wrong yeah, answer. Something about a yeah. chair, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you can count on me. Involved. Woo is in uh, Hillsborough. Uh, <laughs> Woo, what's, what's the song that you miss, you miss here? Growing up, my parents always, we listened to the oldies, and Secret agent man i always thought it was secret asian man so i yeah. sang that all in school and my friends made fun of me for years secret asian man yeah and <laughs> literally did that with my kid not three days ago in the car yeah i could see that one that one's common that's not that not that unusual Fantastic. you could uh you could uh, offend somebody with that as well but i just i I brought it up. I just it was on my mind, and I didn't want to talk about LeBroni anymore. Yeah, tired of talking about LeBron James and Bronny. Um, and here's the other thing. Like, okay, let's say let's just go back to like the generational thing. Elvis Presley, you know, and Lisa Marie Presley had a daughter, mm-hmm. right? Uh, no, Lisa well, Marie Presley no. wasn't the daughter. Yeah, uh, excuse me. Priscilla. I'm sorry. I'm Priscilla and Elvis had a daughter. Yeah, Lisa Marie. Um, I remember her attempting a musical career. Yeah. And it was just met with mixed reviews, right? Right. She was an Elvis. Yeah. Uh, and But I think it's very fair. Like, the music industry is very fair. Like, if you're not good and you can't stand on the stage alone, yeah, you, you're not making it. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think there are lots of cases of actors. You see actors' kids who go on to, you know, have careers and, act, and they don't become the star. That Like, not everybody can be Jane Fonda. You know, you know, it's it. Not everybody can do that. Yeah. But I think in sports, it's different. Like, you know, we're seeing some weird things. And and longevity was never this like basketball players, football players. They didn't play 20 years. It was very unusual Mm -hmm. to see a career like Tom Brady's career. Like, you know, it's unprecedented. And his position is like you have to go back to George Blanda or somebody and go, okay, how long did you play? And. So you need like this, A, it needs to be a superstar, B, you have to be a player that plays decades and has a kid young. And then only then can the possibility exist even for your kid to play. That's, I mean, it's just a rare circumstance. I'm fascinated by this. I'm, I'm eager to see how this all plays out. Yeah, but, you know, as many examples as you can cite of children of, you know, talented, famous people that have not you know, lived up to what their parents accomplished, you can also cite lots of examples where children have gone on and done very well in similar industries, you know? Yeah. 
the, you know, the the uh, nep the nepo babies, the nepotism. Yeah. That goes on. That in I think it would be easier in some respects in entertainment because they can hide you. They can put you on a sitcom. Yeah. You don't have to be. You know, you, Jerry Seinfeld's kids don't need to be Seinfeld. Right. They can have a career in music, be, or excuse me, in entertainment because of who he is. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they can work behind the scenes. Like, but I have more respect, like, you know, Phil Knight's kid who has gone on to become, you know, make in the movie business. Yeah. Become a big deal. I have a lot of respect for that. Like, he just didn't fall in line with dad's sneaker empire and become an executive and the CEO of Nike. He forged his own path. Mm-hmm. I, I respect that. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Five big things going on. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I'm so excited about... This 5 at 5 that's coming up. Anna's been working on this. She's been quietly uh, muttering to herself and laughing to herself. This is going to be good, huh? You ready? Laughing and crying. Laughing and crying, really? Oh, yeah. Some of this stuff is icky. All right. Make them laugh. Make them cry. But we won't make them wait. The 5 at 5. Let's do it. The 5 at 5. Number 1 in our 5 at 5. Anna. I'm going to start with the light, but also because this happened over the weekend and I'm kind of catching up to it. Did you hear that actor Will Ferrell was in Portland over the weekend? Not just in Portland, but he actually sat courtside at the Blazers game and was cheering. This was the game against the Raptors. He was posing for the broadcast and took fan photos with folks. He was just there to enjoy the game. He also stopped in at a local bakery (laughs) for dessert. He went into uh, Loretta Jean's Bakery in Southeast Portland that same night for slices of apple and cherry pie. In case you want to know what old Ron Burgundy has for dessert, he likes himself some apple and cherry pie. Did you know Ron Burgundy used to hang out with Vince Scully? True story. I'll let Ron tell the story. You'd party with Vince Scully before? Uh, you mean Mad Dog? Mad Dog Scully? Yeah. You talking about Mad Dog? I didn't know that was his nickname. Oh, yes. There was a period of time (laughs) where after every homestand, Mad Dog and I would go down to Tijuana. And uh, we'd leave on a Friday. We'd come back on a Monday. And that that long car ride home, we would not talk about what just happened. Because it was insane. It was insane. True stuff. Uh, look, I like that he's showing up at a Blazer game. Curious to see what he's doing. Is he making a movie or something? I know. I want to know what his tie to Portland Maybe is. Maybe he's a big-time Blazer fan all of a sudden. Number two in the five at five. Well, by now you've heard Tom Brady is uh, retiring again. Uh, but it turns out he won't be jumping headfirst into his broadcasting gig with Fox Sports. So he won't be part of the network's plans for Super Bowl coverage next weekend. Uh, turns out that his announcement was also surprising to Fox Sports, who had no idea that Brady was going to call it a career this morning. Remember, uh, Brady has this, you know, just a small 10-year, $375 million deal to join Fox as an analyst upon his retirement. So they're not throwing him in yet. Yeah, I, look, uh, and 
I'm not sure. I think this is a contingency plan for Tom. Like, if he if he decides he has nothing else to do, he does it. They can't force him to broadcast if he doesn't want to broadcast. But he has the security, the job security of this deal. And, you know, apparently he's thought this through. But I'm not sure how good he's going to be in a broadcast booth. Like, I think there's some pretty good broadcasters out there. He played he did great as a quarterback, but can he actually talk about the game in a way that's interesting? And will he will he be real or will he be uh, somebody who's just talking from a perspective of, gosh, this came so easily for me. I don't understand how these dummies out on the field can't do what I did. I'll be curious. Number three in the five at five. Oh, goodness. Josh Sills, Eagles lineman. Uh, has been placed on the commissioner exempt list in the wake of kidnapping and rape charges. Um, he will uh, not be allowed to practice playing games or travel with the team until he is off that list. What did he uh, do? He. This goes back to an incident that was reported um, that happened in December of 2019. He reportedly forced a woman to um, perform oral sex on him for approximately 20 minutes in his truck. Sills had given the woman and her cousin a ride back to her cousin's home from a local cafe. The alleged victim was 21 years old at the time. Uh, the allegations are that he grabbed her by the arm, pulled her back into the truck, yeah. and began the sexual assault. Ugh. Uh, Super Bowl week or the two weeks in front of the Super Bowl, you often have, not often, but you sometimes have incidents like this. I remember Eugene Robinson. Falcons were a day away from playing the Super Bowl. He was just given the Bart Starr Award for, you know, the player who displays high moral character. Um, then uh, that same evening he gets under a, a prostitution sting. or He gets arrested, Eugene Robinson. I remember Willie Andrews, uh, Patriots backup safety. Uh, this is back in 2008. Uh, they found him in a Ford Crown Victoria with 6800 in cash and a half pound of marijuana. Uh, he got arrested. Stanley Wilson got arrested. Um, went on a cocaine bender. Was found by his position coach before the Super Bowl. By the way, he got banned from the NFL for life because it, it was his third relapse. And I covered the Super Bowl in San Diego where Barrett Robbins of uh, the Raiders went missing. He went MIA from the team hotel, went on a drinking bitch with Ron Burgundy and Mad Dog in Tijuana. And, uh, you know, the Raiders got crushed by Tampa. I don't I don't know if this one's going to be a major distraction for the Eagles, but I'll even go back to, you know, we had that terrible accident involving Andy Reid's son who, uh, you know, severely maimed a young child in a DUI arrest before a Super Bowl. Um, some of this stuff happens, but this one's weird because, you know, it appears as though this happened in 2019. 2019. So it's just coming out now. Just coming out now. Weird stuff. Eagles will have to deal with it. Number four in the five at five. Well, the 49ers um, still haven't figured out their quarterback situation, but it sounds like Jimmy Garoppolo uh, may not be in the picture next season. The coach, Kyle Shanahan, admitted that he doesn't see any scenario in which Garoppolo returns to the 49ers next season. Garoppolo is a free agent this offseason, and it sounds like the 49ers do not plan on re-signing him. Looks like it'll be Brock Purdy and Trey Lance in 2023 for the Niners. At least that's how it starts. 
Um, I don't think it's a big surprise, but, you know, anybody who saw the 49ers play the Eagles in the NFC title game remembers the sight of Brock Purdy getting hurt, remembers the sight of the Eagles celebrating, but also remembers Jimmy Garoppolo on the sidelines smiling and laughing as the Niners were getting their teeth kicked in. Um, I think he knew at the time he wasn't coming back either. Number five in the five at five. Well, a man died after a brawl among spectators at a middle school basketball game. This was in Vermont. I hate this story. Yesterday, yeah. Russell Giroux, 60 years old, died. State troopers were called to that school, and there were reports of a large fight taking place between fans during a 7th and 8th grade boys basketball game. This is great how this goes. Uh, spectators ended up on the court. Multiple people were tackled, shoved, multiple punches thrown. Uh, he was involved in the fight, police confirmed. Asked to receive medical attention, taken by ambulance to a hospital, and later pronounced dead at the hospital. That's so sad. So sad. Uh, they say multiple spectators were involved. If you are getting ejected from a youth sports event, and yes, middle school is youth, if you are fighting, if you're throwing fist to cuffs, uh, you probably need to reevaluate your perspective. Uh, I, I, I pump the brakes a little bit on the use of the word fight. You know, I have heard the word fight tossed around. We don't know if this guy was actually out throwing punches or if this person was cold cocked. Maybe he was trying to intervene. We don't know yet. Uh, but they say he was involved. And I cringe at this stuff. I hate when police get called to Little League fields. I hate when arrests are made. I don't like when Robert Ory gets ejected from... You know, a youth basketball game. This is all so stupid and short-sighted. I, you know, I don't like this stuff, man. It's, it's ugly. It's not what it should be. And that is the five at five. Thanks for bringing us up, Anna. Oh, you're welcome. Lift, uplifting. Yeah, ended on a high note. Can't there. we you just know? say don't get kicked out of any sporting event? Like, what, yeah. like, what are we doing? I have you ever been at a sporting event with a friend or somebody that you're with that they they start to do something that you're not comfortable with? Or they're embarrassing you. Yes. Tell me about it. Uh, I took a friend that I hadn't seen in a really long time to a Trailblazers game, and he got wasted. I mean, wasted. And look, I'm not above having a couple beers at the Trailblazers game, but uh, I'm never going to go too hard. You know, you're out in public. There's a million things that can go wrong. It's the root of every problem at every sporting event ever. And I have to give credit to the uh, the usher, the attendant in our section, how they handled it. Here I am. I, I'm dying inside. He's just being loud and obnoxious. He's not being violent or aggressive, but I can sort of I can imagine that it's going to get there within 45 minutes or so. And the, the attendant comes up and just very gently is like, "Sir, I know I can see you're having a lot of fun." We just need you to have just a little bit less fun. Can you do that for me? And he, it totally worked. It totally worked. He's like, yep, settled okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, settled him down. Thank goodness. I was humiliated. Steven, have you ever been in an event where someone you were with embarrassed you? Fortunately, not like that, no. I, I cannot think of one outing, so uh, I, I'm really pointless to this conversation because that, that no. would be – I don't know what I would do, like because I wouldn't want to, like, rat my friend out, but at the same time, like, I'd be like, Peter, I'm embarrassed – because I am associated with this person. So, I mean, I think I would have to tell somebody, right? It happened to us 
in a, a youth volleyball game several years ago. I have a really good friend. He's a normal, well-adjusted person. He uh, owns his own business. He's a good, you know, for you know, good guy. Like even today, I would go, you know, hang out with this person. But he is super competitive. And our kids were playing on the same volleyball team. And in youth volleyball, you have a referee who's up there on that lifeguard stand right by the net, calling all the, you know, directing the traffic and officiating the game. But you also then get kids on, you know, both teams that will be asked to line judge. And um, those line judges are kids. They're 12 years old. They're 13 years old. And this line judge in a game may or may not have missed a call. <laughs> okay, maybe this kid missed the blew the call. Who cares? But my friend w got really hot about it. Like, you missed that call. He was like yelling at the kid, and I was, I had to get up and be. I was like, hey man, it's just a kid. It's a kid missing a call. We're all gonna be okay here. We're going to live. And, and I think in hindsight he laughed, but then he said to me, you know, but the ball was out. <laughs> you know? And I, yes, I know the ball was out. You can't be doing that. You can't be that guy inside the gym. Well, and to be fair, like you and I have, you know, there are moments, and yes, it's, you know, youth stuff, but there are moments where you get so into it as a spectator or as a parent, and you can find yourself getting really kind of hot under the collar and that, but there is like reasonable people check themselves and go, wait a minute, hold on, you know, yeah, I'm let's out of step game. back. This you is know, supposed these are to be kids. for fun. Yeah, because like the last thing you want to do at a youth event like that is become the spectacle. You know, go from spectator. I, to I spectacle. often find that like I I was no more qualified than anybody else to say what was a good call or bad call in yeah. volleyball. Like that's <laughs> not my that's not my gig. Yeah. And but I found a lot of parents would lean into me and go, "What do you think of that call?" And I like, you know, I don't have any unusual expertise. And but my my big thing is like, I don't mind a bad call in a game. Yeah. Like I know diehard sports fans are gonna hate me saying that. I don't mind a bad call, especially in a youth sports game, because I think your kid learns something from seeing something not go their way. There's something to be gained from that's a that's a minor injustice mm -hmm. in the in the. Uh, you know, the arc of what could go wrong in your life, right. getting a bad call in a game is a minor setback, like really minor. Like, I don't remember the bad calls that went against me as a kid. But the worst thing you can have is a parent trying to, you know, inject themselves into it. I often, if especially if the official had a tough game, would walk by the official after the game and go, hey, thanks for being out here because I know nobody else is going to say it. Right. You know, and I get it. Like, I, I don't mind a bad call because what you want, if you're a parent and you've got a kid playing youth sport, you want, what are you going to get out of this? Like, very few kids, I was talking to a parent today about this. We were talking about youth soccer, club soccer, scholarships that are available in college and all that. Most parents who will go out and put their kids into a club program, I don't care what the sport is, like, at some point of that experience, they think to themselves, I wonder if my kid could get a scholarship. And a lot of times, the programs themselves will sell the parents on the idea that they have developed players who have gone on to college and got scholarships. What they leave out is that most of those players probably would have gone on to college without that program. If they were in any other program, they probably would have made it too. Like you get just special athletes who uh, work on their skills. Um, but, you know, maybe you talk about 
you know, I saw somebody lay this out. How many, how few scholarships are really available, like in the world of college soccer? So you have like, you know, a very limited number of scholarships every year that go to high school players, the best high school players in the country. Let's just use the number 300 scholarships. Let's say there's 300 scholarships available in Division One soccer. You know, a third of those are going to international players. So now you're down to 200. Now you're talking about, hey, there's some community college players and, uh, you know, some scholarships for, you know, some players that are going to be uh, on teams that, that, you know, have been non-scholarship players that are suddenly going to get scholarships. So now you're down to 150. And so how many, you know, how many thousands of club players are there across the country who all think they're getting one of those 150 scholarships? The math doesn't work. So, you know, long story long, if you're in this for your kid getting a scholarship, you're missing the point. You should be into youth sports for your kid getting a positive experience hanging around other people who are healthy. Statistics tell us that kids who play sports are less likely to get in trouble, get better grades, are, uh, have fewer instances of teen pregnancy, um, and you guess what? Build some life skills and hang around other healthy people. And, oh, by the way, if you get a bad call in a game, guess what you learn? You learn, I have the ability to overcome that call. And bad things happen in life, and I'm, you know what? You know what happens? I, I get the next play. So... Don't be upset when your kid gets a bad call. And can oh, I add one a, more thing to that, John? Great opportunity, yeah. Uh, and if your you know if your kid is good enough to play college, it doesn't have to be Division One. It can be junior college. It can be Division Two, Division Three. Like yep. that's how you get your schooling paid for, which is the most important thing. And like a lot of these kids nowadays, it's D one or bust. That's not that shouldn't be your goal. Like your goal should just be to get your school paid, because more than likely you're not going pro. So you just got to yeah. get that school paid for. Yeah, you talk about how few people get through the funnel to be. You know, to be I, – I just go back to our own experience. Like, I watched all of the volleyball players in the entire region, okay? You know, hundreds and hundreds of players. It didn't take me very long, and I'm not an expert in volleyball, to identify the two or three players among the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that I thought were Pac-12-type athletes. And I was pretty much on. Like, two of them got – you know, one went to Washington, one went to Oregon. And I looked back and I was like under no illusion that my five foot seven inch daughter who was playing middle blocker was gonna get a D one scholarship. I was just there to see her grow and have good experience and watch her watch her struggle a little bit and develop some grit. Yeah, I think it's easy though. It's easy to get caught up in it all. You yeah. Because totally. it's a whole culture. And uh you get a little bit uh with your eye off the ball and you start thinking really grand things and I, I feel for families that go through that because it's a really hard lesson when the kid like Steven like you were saying it's like do you want or bust really like that's what you're really going to shoot for and it, it's like they lose sense of reality they lose sense of what is actually realistic yeah for you know the outcomes for their kid and a lot of coaches and I overheard a lot of things that that troubled me and that club scene, I hear it in soccer, too. I hear it in baseball. It's not just volleyball. I hear it all over. You get coaches who are selling parents on the idea that the kids need private lessons, private training, extra, you know, just to keep pace with the other kids. And we, we forget that part of the livelihood of some of these coaches is directly related to that. And I wonder sometimes if the kids would just be better off organizing themselves and having fun and playing and 
growing up. And I, we had a really good experience with one coach. Who, and I said, you know, what should our kid be doing this summer? And because some other coaches were saying, well, she needs to go year round if she's going to make the top club. And, and, you know, the coach told me, let her be a kid. I think it was great advice. Mm-hmm. Let her be a kid. I love that. Leave it here. You got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I love sometimes when we get on these subjects, youth sports. Parents out there listening, I don't know if you're nodding your head or shaking your fist when I go on rants like that, but uh, you know, maybe you could tell me if you've got a kid that has played youth sports, Something that you learned in the course of your kids playing that you wish you'd have known in the beginning. 503-417-7575 is a number. I think, you know, I had the benefit of having the older daughter who went through it. And I do think I'm a better dad with the 6-year-old and the 8-year-old now because I know what I would do differently. And, in fact, it came up last night is, you know, our 8-year-old is a good athlete. She's very athletic. She's got good hand-eye coordination. She's strong, pound for pound. She might be the strongest person in our family. Um, And, uh, you know, but she doesn't want to play a whole bunch of different things. Like we've said, you want to play soccer? She said, well, I did. I played soccer. She played one year. And she's like, I did that. Check the box. She's playing pickleball right now and learning the game. But she doesn't want to play softball. And I was like, how about basketball? No. She doesn't really want to get into these things. Now, the you know, with the older daughter, I might have put her into the sport without her really wanting to do it and just kind of forced her to play. See if you like it. With the younger one, I told Anna, I said, let's be patient with this one. Let's let let's see where she ends up. She's only eight. Like maybe yes, I know there's a lot of pressure. You know, get her into soccer, get her going here, like she's gonna fall behind. Uh, Let's not get into that. Let's let her kind of be a kid. And I'm curious to see how that plays out. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle ground. Uh, let's go to the phones. John's in McMinnville. Got a question. John, go ahead. Hey, John, I was wondering, you know, you got a problem with, and I agree with you, with, um, you know, correcting the calls at youth sports. And I 100% agree. However, I was, my daughter played youth volleyball, and they had kids keeping score and the kids were getting the score wrong. So how do you feel on correcting them if they're not scoring it correctly? Yeah, that is a, that's a tough one. That comes up all the time, and kids are playing it. Uh, kids getting the score wrong. I think, look, I think a gentle reminder or allowing the coaches to have that conversation. Uh, you know, I don't like when parents are screaming across the court, the score, the score, the score. Like, you know, I get it to some extent. I've seen the score, you know, wrong on multiple occasions. I've seen it happen. But I think by and large, again, it's one of those things that comes back to that live lesson, uh, that life lesson of, hey, like sometimes in life, uh, your boss, your job, uh, your significant other, somebody in traffic gets the score wrong too. What are you going to do? You know, I, I, what I cringe at is if we run around and we solve all the problems of our kids all the time, I cringe at the idea that your child may grow up and their first adversity in life comes at age 25. That's no good. The stakes are too high. Mistakes at 25, 30, they're too big. You want them to make the mistakes and encounter the adversity at 
11, 12, 15, and learn that, hey, when something goes bad or something goes wrong, I can overcome it. Uh, when something doesn't go my way, I have two options. I can sit around crying about it, pointing fingers, blaming other people, or I can do something about it. Like, I think those are valuable lessons that kids learn in youth sports. So getting the score wrong, I don't think it's bad to have, like, a gentle reminder or a parent can walk over and just say, hey, I think your score might be wrong. Can you double-check it? Or leave it to the coaches. The coaches know. Like, what I don't like is four parents who are sitting around sipping on their Starbucks coffees, browsing on their phones, look up, and they're yelling at the scorekeeper, the score's wrong. Like, we don't know. Maybe the official turned to the scorekeeper and said, take a point away, or, you know, hey, we're doing a do-over. I don't know. Bruce is in Portland. Bruce, welcome to the program. How you doing? I'm well. How about you? I'm doing well. Um, I, Good. I have, I have three kids, none of them D1 athletes, but I coached baseball, basketball, and football for about 15 years and uh, because somebody needed to. <laughs> and uh, yes. ba- baseball, I would still go back and coach, and football too. Basketball, I had the shortest career, partly because I didn't know what I was doing, but partly because in a basketball gym, you, you can hear and the players can hear everything, and everybody's an expert because the calls are so subjective. It's, it's wretched in basketball. Yeah, it's hard. Have you ever officiated basketball? I tried it one time. I had a coach say, hey, you mind officiating? It's really difficult. To, I, I officiate. That's the way it worked when somebody yeah. wouldn't show up. So I officiated all three. Basketball was impossible. And even though they know I'm not an official, they were on me too. And it's like, oh, my, you people are just out of control. And uh, and what I, you know, what the kids got to learn, especially, say, baseball, is, you know, we'd have umpires that had their own strike zone, and that might not be a strike, but it is tonight. Adjust your game, and that's a great lesson moving forward. Um, the rules the rules change. you got to adapt, and yeah. uh, don't, whine, don't whine about it if somebody told you. You yeah. know it after, the, after you've been up to bat one time. Yeah, I think, look, adversity, you know, we always talk about sports building characters, say people trot out quotes or whatnot, but I think one of the best things that, that people get is, you know, we all know, as grown-ups, you know, we we uh, we have a, an extended family member that is, you know, dealing with late stages of cancer. I lost one of my best friends to colon cancer, you know, when he was 50 years old. The studio I'm in right now, doing the show from, I've got a Oakland A's jersey. That was his team. And it's the number 50 because he said he wanted to make age 50. I got that jersey for him. It hangs on the wall in the studio here. Horrible things happen. Bad things happen in life. You get fired from a job. You somebody uh, you have a bad relationship. Go sideways. You know you somebody gets sick. You know you want to have had some life experience by the time you become an adult where you dealt with some stuff. And you know I remember a little league season. I was nine. And my dad was a professional baseball player, had played in AAA with the Mets. Uh, when it came time for Little League tryouts, people whispered and knew. And I'm nine years old, and I got a team that drafts me to play with the 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. I was way in over my head, Bronny James, way in over my head. Not like the ball was moving, the game was just moving too fast for me. It was brutal. I can remember even going to practice. I couldn't make contact. I was nine. These kids looked like they were 15, 20 years old. They were 11 and 12. And I can just remember being in over my head and it being very discouraging. 
But I know I just kept working and working, and by the next year I started to make contact, and the year after that I actually started getting hits. And, and, and so, like, I know if something doesn't go right that it's not the end of the world. And so, like, you just got to keep working. Like, but I learned that in Little League. You know, I, I don't know how I could have got that anywhere else. And I worry about, you know, I worry about the reset video game mentality that everybody else worries about. But I worry that if we don't give kids a safe place to fail when they're 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, that they're re- when they fail as adults, uh, it's going to be catastrophic or feel catastrophic in their world. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up top of the hour in Portland on 750 The Game, Talk Timbers. Uh, the Pulse with Peter Sampson will be back tomorrow. Uh, as it is a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday uh, offering here on 750 The Game in Portland. Uh, we will be broadcasting tomorrow at Spirit Mountain Casino. Dennis Dixon, former Oregon Duck, will be part of the broadcast. Um, you know, I just uh, enjoy, I have over the years, talking with Dennis Dixon, having him on the show. We've done a couple of events where he has showed up, but uh, if you're going to be on scene... At Spirit Mountain tomorrow, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., you will see two-time Super Bowl champion Dennis Dixon in the house tomorrow, uh, particularly in the 5 o'clock hour. He'll be hanging out. Uh, I'll be peppering him with questions. He'll be joining us on the show, on the broadcast, and we'll be talking a lot. Uh, We'll also uh, talk to uh, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden on the program tomorrow, and we're going to talk with the head of the sports book there at Spirit Mountain. I'm curious to know how they set their odds. How do they set the line? What kind of handle do they take? What kind of Super Bowl props are they offering? We'll have all of that on tomorrow's show as we broadcast live from Spirit Mountain Casino. They've got all kinds of restaurants on site if you want to come out there and grab dinner. Uh, obviously, they have refurbished uh, all of their suites as well. And uh, Spirit Mountain uh, welcoming us with open arms tomorrow on the show. Uh, really uh, interested in that. I want to play a little lightning round game with Peter Sampson and uh, with uh, with uh, Stephen as well. Um, you guys mind playing a little lightning round? Yep. Let's do it. Yeah. Do it. I want to pepper you guys, and uh, you, you're, you're both going to have to come up with a question as well, but I will start. I want you to think about questions you want. Peter, you have to ask Stephen and I a question, and Stephen, you have to ask Peter and I a question. But I want to start with this one uh, because uh, I feel like sometimes we don't talk – enough NBA on this show. Uh, I want to know, guys, uh, the Chauncey Billups era of Blazers basketball. Can this guy get better as a coach? Can he learn on the fly, on the job training, so to speak? Uh, I think he can get better. I don't know if he's ever going to be uh, what you consider maybe an upper echelon coach, Uh, but there's certainly areas of opportunity. And I think he's got a pretty good staff, but I definitely question, uh, if not the direct decision-making, maybe just sort of the lack of urgency, you know, late-game situations. I think there's room to improve. There's definitely room to improve. Um, And, you know, he has made an adjustment. Last game, Damian Lillard, he played him the entire fourth quarter because he took him out early in the third. Uh, that was the first time he had done that all season. And with Dame, the way he's playing, you know, he averages 
Averaged over 40 points a game last week, player of the week. You need to have Dame in at the fourth quarter, and that's what he did against the Hawks. He played him the entire fourth quarter, so I like that he did that. He has switched it up a little bit. Uh, he's shown the the ability to bench Yusuf Nurkic at the end of games and play Drew Eubanks when Nurk isn't effective. So there are things he needs to be better at and a lot better at, but I will say there's still some room to grow because he's still a young coach um, that still doesn't have a lot of experience. I mean, we we it's only been half of a season because last year, we forget, such a fake season. So it didn't count. All right, my second question. Terry Stotts, age 65 was uh, fired or parted ways with the Blazers in the summer of 21, fourth first-round exit in five years, leaves the club with the second-most wins in franchise history. He has been quietly sitting on the sideline. His name has come up for a couple of jobs. Does Terry Stotts coach again as a head coach in the NBA? Yeah, I think he does. Um, you know, I think he showed in Portland that he can win with lesser talent. And the way they won was with offense, and I think with the way the NBA is going in all sports, really, in general, just offense is being the uh, the number one thing. I think that he will get another shot if he wants it, and I think he will eventually get a job, and I think he will want one. So yes, I think he will. Be yeah, and and I think he's maybe, and I hope he's being a little picky. I know he had conversations about that Lakers job. They asked him if he wanted to be a lead assistant. He said no. Thank goodness. Careful what you wish for. Terry Stotts would have been miserable, but if the right job comes up, I, he's he's got plenty in the tank. Your guys' question. Go ahead, Pepper. Me, you got one for me. I do. Uh, okay, so stay in basketball. I don't know if that's what you wanted to do, but I'm staying in the NBA. Uh, the Pacific Division in the NBA is wild. Before the year, Sacramento Kings were by far the least favorite team in the in the division. They are winning the division by a game and a half over the Clippers, two and a half games over the Warriors and Suns, and five and a half over the Lakers. Are the Sacramento Kings gonna win the Pacific Division? <laughs> <laughs> they're 28 and 21 right now 49 games in they're up a game and a half over all these good teams can they do it like the beam, uh, baby i'm gonna say no i'm they're not winning the pacific division they're playing in a division that includes the golden state warriors and the clippers they're not winning that division uh it's it's one thing to play 50 games of pretty good basketball that doesn't remind you of the sacramento kings history it's another thing to close it out. I just I think they've got the Clippers and Warriors right behind them. They do not win the Pacific Division. I I agree. I think it's the Warriors. Warriors are playing a lot better lately. But King- it's it's very very intriguing because the Kings have been so bad for so long. You got to think like what does it take to get over that hump? And maybe they got it this year. They're a terrible franchise. They could be forty nine and zero, and I'm saying they're not going to win that division. Yeah, the problem is there's like we always talk about muscle memory and like for sports or golfers that take the season off, they come back and they go, you know, I, my muscle memory was there. This is a franchise that has no muscle memory, and so the Kings can play well. And you know, it was interesting. I watched a game earlier this season. They were playing at Utah. And I watched him, and I said, how are they going to blow this? And they actually won the game. Like, they closed it out, and they won on the road. And it was a good win for a team that has not had a lot of great moments in the last forever. So it, it told me, I was like, okay, maybe they're sniffing around a little bit. But it's one thing to sniff around it. I think they're doing that right now. They're sitting in the three spot, you know, 28 and 21. But we're, we're, at, we're at 50 games. We're not even at the trade deadline. Here come the Warriors. Clippers are better than them, too. And they have muscle memory. The Warriors have all kinds of muscle memory. That's why they catch them. Peter, you got a question. Yeah. Is the era of the super team in the NBA over? 
Is it over? Mm. You have the Nuggets, the Grizzlies, the Kings are your top three in the West. And for the last, I mean, since LeBron went to Miami, it's been all about you have to have a big two, a big three, maybe even a big four with Boston back in the day. Are we done with that? I don't think so. I think it's cyclical. And we saw sort of that generation of stars do it. And now it just depends where the success comes from. But I think teams like Miami and Milwaukee, you know, even though Milwaukee had a bona fide star in Giannis, those kinds of teams playing deep into the playoffs, I think, gave everybody else hope that you could develop an organic roster, you could build around players that you drafted. And, you know, I remember the Heat being in the in the uh, East Finals a couple years ago and then advancing and everybody going, uh, how refreshing is that? Like, they were just a real – they were a team that was not fun to play against. So I think the GMs are very reactive. And I think, you know, you're right. You kind of saw everybody go, well, you need big two. You need a big three. And now we're watching some teams that are built a little differently. And it'll come back, though, the minute, like, a great star player goes somewhere and they build around them and they win, everybody will go, oh, that's the way to do it. Like, the worst thing that can happen for your theory is, like, Brooklyn to put it all together and win the title. And everybody goes, well, I guess we, we're doing that again. So – I think that's where we're going. Steven, you agree or no? Oh, yeah, I agree with you, John. And I agree with you because, like, yes, it's always going to be about talent in the NBA. I think that's the one sport where talent trumps everything. And so because of that, if there is a star player that's out there or wants to leave, wants to go to a new team, all these teams are going to try to get him. And, you know, it may not be a big three, quote-unquote, but they need, you know, as much talent as they can get. And I think you can even look at last year, like, was Boston a big three, or is it just Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart are all really good basketball players? Same with the Warriors, like Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond. Like, is that a big three, or is it just they're really good? I, I do think that it's just all about talent. So at some point, there's going to be another team that pops that has those legitimate three all stars, and then maybe just role players everywhere else. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I like the rapid fire in the last segment. Keeps you on your toes, makes you think. Big, uh, big uh, party about to start, about nine minutes away at the Embassy Suites in Tigard. Jonathan Smith is going to uh, be on stage. And uh, they're going to have a uh, cocktail reception and then a dinner afterwards. And they're going to talk about the 10-win season. And they're going to talk about the recruiting class and probably going to try to sell some tickets on the newly remodeled west side of Research Stadium. A lot of Oregon State fans are squawking about the ticket prices at Research Stadium. There have been some increases inside the stadium. And uh, the... Uh, the price of tickets on the on the newly renovated side of the stadium is uh, is got uh, some eyebrows raised. Uh, I was talking with a friend about this uh, yesterday. I I don't know. Like I get it. Like I remember seeing Scott Barnes, the Oregon State athletic director, on the field prior to the Washington game, and I was giving him a hard time about the uh, the fact that he was going to have to give raises to Jonathan Smith and the assistant coaches and whatnot. And uh, and then I said, you know, it's not really on Oregon State. Like, 
this will be passed down to season ticket holders in some form or fashion. It always does. Ticket holders end up paying the bill, whether it's the Blazers, whether it's the Ducks, the Beavers, like, you know, the ticket holders end up with the bill at the end of it because the athletic department is not just going to, out of the goodness of its heart, uh, you know, try to, uh, you know, give somebody a raise and not raise ticket prices. That's part of the game. So I think it's interesting to kind of watch what is going on with, uh, you know, Oregon State renovating the west side of the stadium, simultaneously Jonathan Smith winning 10 games. Think about think about the advantage that that has given the athletic department at Oregon State. Like, if Jonathan Smith didn't have a 10-win season and the enthusiasm that he's got, I just don't know if they would have the uh, – like, the, I don't think they would have the same momentum, obviously, that they have right now in trying to sell tickets on the west side of the stadium. It's a – it's a perfect storm of opportunity for Scott Barnes. And, and look, if I were in his position, I'd be seizing it with both hands. I'd be like, you know what? The prices are going up. This is what it costs to win. We want to play on the next level. Here's what, what, what is happening. Simultaneously at Oregon, I think Rob Mullins is a little bit hamstrung because even though Dan Lanning won 10 games, even though he's got to come up with money to pay the assistant coaches and pay the head coach and keep everybody happy and keep the lights on and, you know, fund all these other sports, winning 10 games at Oregon doesn't get you the same enthusiasm that winning 10 games at Oregon State gets you. Like, we talk about it on this show from a fan standpoint, but take a moment to pivot into the position that the athletic directors in this conference are in. If you have big-time success, you're going to have to pan out raises. If you have big-time success, though, you also have a fan base that tends to be more engaged. What you don't want is modest success and, you know, the, uh, I guess the, the, the feeling that you need to invest further in your product to take a step forward, but you don't quite have the enthusiasm from the fan base where you can go, hey, I'm going to, we're going to raise season ticket prices by 10% and hope that fans come along for it. Now, Oregon, what Oregon does have is it has a great home schedule this season. You know, they're going to have Colorado and Deion Sanders at home. That's a big one. They've got the Civil War matchup against Oregon State at home. Like any time that you can have uh, the Beavers playing at Autzen Stadium, that's good for Oregon. But, you know, I... I am. Uh, I think Rob Mullins has got a more tricky task. He's got to sell the home schedule. He's got to sell Dan Lanning taking a step forward. He's got to sell. Hey, you can see Coach Prime. You can see uh, the USC game in Eugene, and you can see Oregon State play in Eugene. That's a pretty good home schedule, and you know sell those kinds of things, while Oregon State is over there going, hey. We won 10 games, and look at how shiny and new this stadium is. It's a different pitch. But uh, I'll be curious to see kind of what the season ticket renewal rates are here at the end of March because that's when, at the end of March, they have two months left in this push. That's when the season ticket renewals are due. And I'm really curious to see, like, tonight's events uh, at Nike for Oregon with Dan Lanning on the stage and at the Embassy Suites in Tigard with Jonathan Smith on the stage, I'm really curious to see not only are they celebrating recruits, but how many season ticket sales come out of this.
because this is part of it. And both programs have told me that they're under a little bit of pressure to reach the Portland market. And it's interesting to me that they're both selling the idea that these events are happening in Portland. We know Tigard's not Portland. We know the Nike campus is not located in Portland. But what they mean is, hey, in that Portland metropolitan area, it's the largest population base in the state. Uh, you've seen the programs come up and do scrimmages and play practices. Oregon State played a game at, at uh, Providence Park last season against Montana State. And so we've seen the outreach effort. But this is another part of it tonight at 6 o'clock here when Jonathan Smith gets on the stage and says, hey, how about that 10-win season? And, hey, how about our recruiting class? You know it's going to be closely followed by some administrator in the athletic department going, hey, by the way, get your season tickets because it's next season's going to be lights out at Oregon State. Simultaneously, Rob Mullins got to be ecstatic about Dan Lanning getting on the Nike campus and getting around a whole bunch of Duck fans who are excited about a signing class that started on the early signing period that is really interesting and surprising in a lot of ways. And Dan Lanning being able to get, get up there, they're not just celebrating recruits. They are raising money. They are selling tickets. They are whipping the crowd into a frenzy and going, hey, get your season tickets. So I think it's really interesting to, to watch that. And I am really curious. Like, the market doesn't lie. The market will not lie. If there is a market for Oregon State to sell tickets at a premium at Reeser Stadium next season, that stadium will be full and it'll be rocking. Or the market will tell Oregon State, hey, I think you're overpriced here and you're forcing some families that usually were season ticket holders to go, you know what, I'm not going to be a season ticket holder this year. Uh, I'm going to step back and I'm going to buy, you know, two games on the secondary market. Or I'll wait for the single game tickets to go on sale. And I'll go to one or two or three games. Like, I'm really curious to see how that shakes out. Simultaneously at Oregon, it's Dan Landing in year two, coming off a 10-win season, and it's a great home schedule. Deion Sanders at Autzen Stadium for his first Pac-12 game, that's, that's, a, that's an event. It's USC coming to Autzen Stadium, that's an event. Civil War game at Autzen Stadium, event. Especially in this golden era of Ducks and Beavers football. All right, tomorrow we are broadcasting from Spirit Mountain Casino. I want you to stop by if you're in the neighborhood. If it's a short drive for you, come see us. Say hello. Uh, enjoy the broadcast from 3 to 6. We'll be in the sports book broadcasting. Ten Barrel will have uh, beverages on site, and uh, there are some giveaways. Dennis Dixon, former Oregon Duck quarterback, will be there. So if you're interested in coming out, I want to see you out there. Steven will be out there. Anna will be out there. We'll be having a good time. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.